freedom. <laughs> you better flush that out your head, new guy. This isn't about freedom. This is a slaughter. If I'm going to get my balls blown off for a word, my word is podcast. <laughs> he really waits to say poontang though he he like he really <laughs> takes a beat before he says poontang and you're like huh poontang i didn't think i, I didn't that's think he was gonna say that right yeah you're not surprised that's the concept you're surprised that's the word right. he chose to describe it poontang okay sure yeah here we are in vietnam thanks for saying poontang to me like we talked about that's what I would look, say to just him. to front load this we talked about this in a previous episode our guest was on in uh, in Heat, where Al Pacino talks about uh, the concept of balling his wife. And it's like, that's never a term <laughs> you should use to define what you do with your wife, right? And similarly, it's like, if you're talking about dying for something, I don't think you should call it poontang. I think you want to <laughs> yeah, pick that one shows of the other. Your, you know what? That shows you're not ready to die for pussy if you're <laughs> yes. calling it poontang. You gotta, you're just not ready. You're not ready. You're not mature enough. Right. A real man dies for pussy. And this is a <laughs> yes. film, of, of course, about defining what a real man is, something we will litigate for the next two hours on this podcast as four experts on masculinity. <laughs> but I think that's a great point. And I think let's uh, let's let's get this uh, engraved above uh, our door. Uh, real men die for pussy. Uh, uh, boys die for poontang. <laughs> Finally, my lower back tattoo makes sense. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the context has been created. Uh, well, uh, you guys are the connoisseurs. I appreciate it. Connoisseurs of context, one could say. This is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Did you know that poontang is a uh, like corruption of the French word putain, which means prostitute? Oh, no. I just looked that up. Wow. Well, now your lower back tattoo makes yeah. sense, David. <laughs> Probably, yeah, exactly. Probably originated in New Orleans, is wow. the thinking. And putain's also just used as like an exclamation. Uh, yes, yeah, putain. Yeah, but, right. You can say it as a as a putain's kind of used like as as like a French fuck. Mm, mm. Yeah, those guys are crazy. The French. Yeah, the the, uh, the French. Don't get me started. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The French. Uh-huh. The French. Uh, look, this is a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear. And sometimes they bounce. Maggots. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Ben, right before we started recording, producer Ben was like, Griffin, you might want to back up from the mic because he was assuming I was going to uh, boulderize one of the uh, Arlie Army quotes for the opening. I don't want to have to do the work necessary to recite that. The, the That's dense why you level hire of him. word replacement. Well, that. A, delivery-wise, <laughs> it's, like, it's tough. why you bring that guy in. Yeah. Right, it's tough. But B, I, I might have to use podcast interchangeably for like, 12 different words he uses. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you put it? Yeah. Right. Oh, man. You better unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shit down your podcast. Yeah, you could take a That's small piece, good. But, but I'm like, if I take one line, it feels like I'm half-assing it. The whole beauty of this performance is that every time he talks, he talks for like six uninterrupted minutes. <laughs> he he keeps going, and you're like, right. I'm still transsex. Yeah, I guess Griff, you could have done the gun mantra, you know, uh, and replaced that with podcasts. You Th- know, you there are a lot of that. things I could have done. This movie has yeah, a lot of iconic lines. Me. I just liked uh, right. saying that I would die. No, for, I liked what you did for podcast. Look, it's a miniseries on the films of Stanley Kubrick. Our guest 
has something to say. I want. I thought it could have been. Remember, this was all just a bad podcast, fat boy. <laughs> well, that's what we'll say at the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah. That's what you'll say to me. That's I'll what I'll say to you. <laughs> Gee, thanks, guys. You have the thousand mile stare, and I just go, "Hey, fat boy, remember this is just a bad podcast." Um, it's a series on the films of Stanley Kubrick. It's called Pods Wide Cast. Today, we've gotten to the last film released in his lifetime. True. Sad, but true. Just a wild thing to think about. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, this is it. It's his penultimate film. He does not live to see the release of the final film. This is uh, the first film in a three-picture deal he signed with Warner Brothers that would remain incomplete. Yes, that that's funny to think about as well, but yes. Um, and it was a hit. And it's an iconic film. It's it's an incredibly iconic film. Yes. I'm not saying that in some argumentative way. It's just when you watch it, even though this is, you know, has a reputation that I'm sure we're all about to talk about. When you watch it, you're like, God, no one has imitated this better. Or like, no one has evolved what this movie does, the first half of this movie does, like... We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk there's about it. That, there's that Kubrick argument that sometimes comes up, certainly from his biggest fans, that like he made the single best film in every genre he worked in. Right. That's a thing that Kubrick fans like to push forward as a notion. And it's not like I, I think sure. this is thought of as the best modern war film. But I do no. think every war film after it is somehow defined by the shadow of this movie. It, you talk about how iconic it is. It is just like every element of this movie, you're sort of like, are you doing the Full Metal Jacket thing or are you moving in the opposite direction of Full Metal Jacket, right? Just introduce the, say the movie's name and introduce our guest in the next Full Metal Jacket, our guest returning to the show of High and Mighty, of Action Boys, pumping two guns, looking fit, let me say. Wow, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, he's got a TV bod now. I mean, come on. He's leaving he's us TV in the star. dust. He's a TV star. Uh, John Gabrus back on the show. Feeling fit <laughs> as I drink my second coffee of the morning. I want to I say, Griff, I was going to do the background you're doing, and I was just like, well, Griff's going to do that. Griff's he, gonna I, do he, I have to let yeah. him have that. Yeah. Right. You have the army man voiced by Arlie Army. Right. This film is, story. this is uh, Arlie Army's uh, third, fourth best performance on film as a, as a sergeant. <laughs> How many Toy Stories is he in? He's in a he's lot in of them. Three. I mean, one. It's yeah. it's the smallest role. He's sort of got the D three, the Mighty Ducks, Bombay. I'll show up at the very beginning, at the very end thing. Is he not a military guy in Saving Silverman? Because that would bump Full Metal Jacket down a whole nother one, right? <laughs> you know, I was debating in my head. I was trying to remember what his status is in Saving Silverman. He is incredible and so good he, when he rolls he like rolls out of the, I've been, i'm i'm realizing i have i remember so little about that movie except how yeah. much i love it so now i want to rewatch it but i remember him tucking and rolling out of a van as like a surprising moment in the movie when i saw it his character name is coach norton i cannot remember if the bit is that he's a vet who then became their coach or it's just a coach who acts like a hyper intense military PTSD, man. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I can't remember which version of it is. It's one of his best performances. I remember him taking a, I think he takes a shit on a lawn in that movie. And there's like a wide shot of Arlie Army with his pants down, like sort of smiling and waving as he's taking a shit. And seeing that with my father and him just saying, I can't believe they got him to do this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's so weird that his career, like every time you watch him, you, it's understood that 
creatively you've seen Full Metal Jacket. That's the you thing. know what I mean. Like right. it's like it's such yes. a weird yes. thing yes. where yes. anyone who uses him in a movie is like, well, you've seen Full Metal Jacket, so we're either doing an homage to that or kind of pulling or the rug out from it. that. Yeah, right. exactly. But yeah. That, that's part of the weird legacy of this movie. Yes, right. Every time he's cast, it is like I was looking through his. Uh, his Wikipedia and and it, there's stuff like right like the, several TV shows using the reveal of oh and our lead character's father is Arlie Ermy and you understand what that means in shorthand. And it's like this explains why this guy's such a nervous Nelly. Right. His dad right. is a fucking is this guy and right. everyone's like oh the dude from Full Metal Jacket. Right, like, season it, five, <laughs> you reveal that he's House's dad and you're like, well, that's the final piece of the puzzle. You don't even need to write this anymore. There's another one where right. he played someone's dad. That's what I'm trying. I was trying to think of this. Like I'm trying to think because he popped up in so many things over the years. Like, oh, oh, and he's, he's in Seven, you know. Yes, he's which is really great in that. In seven, but that's actually. a really interesting yeah. use of him. Uh, 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 it is Briscoe County Junior. The uh, he's Bruce Campbell dad, show, mm. right on Scrubs. I think. Yes, yes. he is. You're right. Yes, uh, and it's like he was tough on him. Yeah, or whatever. right. Is he I mean, on, again? Is he yeah, on Prison Break? Does he play someone's dad in Prison Break? No. Uh no, I'm sorry. He God, plays prison, prison warden on SpongeBob SquarePants. That's what the I was whole the of. whole map of the prison was tattooed on him, and no one thought to check. They checked his butt. <laughs> they didn't check his. They did his tattoo. It's it, it's a wild uh, career he has, and it is a career that's just like, uh, well, you you exist as like a, a permanent piece of like the tapestry of American pop culture in perpetuity. And everyone will now hire you to redo that, riff on that, or subvert that. If you watch this movie for the first time now or recently, yeah. it, you could like retroactively understand everything about Arlie. Or, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, like yeah. it's like watching American Gigolo now, and then you're like, I see why everyone was obsessed with uh, with him. Now. Like, <laughs> right. it, uh, with gear, like it comes to you yeah. where you're like. Oh, I never understood why everyone was obsessed with this person. Then you see the movie that makes everyone upset and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I I'm on board. Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs is like a similar thing. Not Dude, that, we like, just watched it for Action Boys. Yeah. It's so funny you choose that. It's like, right. see, and Jodie Foster even, arguably, yes. in that movie. Yeah. You watch it and you go, well, this explains. I mean, Jodie Foster, that's like her 70th movie at that point. <laughs> right. But you're like, oh, of course, Anthony Hopkins should get to do whatever the fuck he wants. I'm going to start calling him Sir Anthony Hopkins at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's also just that thing of like with with this too, where you're like, this character is so parodied. He has so many times done the parody himself. You imagine going back and watching the original thing, it will be devalued. Right. And instead, it's like, no, it strengthens it. Yeah, I feel like Star Wars, uh, not to activate you fucking dorks, but Star Wars <laughs> suffers from like the parrot, the over parodying. Like when you go back and watch the original trilogy, you're yeah. like, this is cut, like, uh, it's hard not to see a mog yeah. instead of a Wookiee. Yeah. But uh, Full Metal Jacket, you don't watch this and go like, oh, you just do it like this. You're like, oh, this is the fucking nexus point well, of the creation of the idea of a drill this, sergeant in a right. movie. <laughs> yes. This is my thing. I just watched a movie at TIFF this year called The Inspection. Uh, that is an A24 movie that's coming out this year. That's a fe debut 
from this guy called Elegance Bratton, which is one of the best names I've ever heard. Elegance. Just incredible. Elegance Bratton. And it's him telling his true story of his life. He was kicked out of his house when he was a teenager by his mom for being gay. He joined the Marines and he served in the Marines for years. But it's like set only in basic training, right? It's only, it's, it's a, you know, it's a drill sergeant movie. It's set in basic and, or boot camp, whatever you want to call it. And, it's a good movie and it does lots of interesting things with being like a gay guy in the 2000s in the Marines. But I think it knows because every movie knows that it's like it's everyone knows Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Like, let's not try to mess with that. We everyone knows the structure of being in basic training or in boot camp in the military. And being right. barked at by a guy with a hat with like a circular brim. Like we just we know that no that. one's going to yeah. fuck with that. Like Bokeem Woodbine plays the, the drill sergeant and this oh, he's good. Love good Bokeem. Yeah. Good so. casting. Uh, and it's a different character. I'm not saying the movie is some full middle jacket ripoff. I'm just saying, like, I've never seen anyone try to subvert this movie's presentation of that. You know, and you because know, you can't you know really. No, you can't. You can't. And it was like they would just get Arlie Army to do this again. Like, you know, to his credit, he was not one of those guys who was like, look, I've already done the definitive. I'm not going to try it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you could just right, pay right. him and get him to do this again and it would work. Uh, not a movie I like particularly, but like Hacksaw Ridge is one of the only movies I think to get around this where it's like, oh, get Vince Vaughn. He's like a different type of motor mouth. He's scary in right. odd ways. He yeah. has so much baggage himself as a movie star. It's just inherently different enough from Arlie Ermey that you're not saying, oh, they got the cheap Arlie Ermey, which I feel like so often you do. So often you watch a movie where the drill sergeant shows up and you're like, you really weren't willing to pay Arlie Ermey the extra $40,000. Right. Come on. The guy does stuff. He's right. not hard to book. Right. Just to jump to Hacks, stay on Hacksaw Ridge for one second. Yeah. My experience with that movie was watching it the whole time going, what the fuck is Andrew Garfield doing vocally here? This is insane. Oh my God, this movie's a fucking cartoon, blah, blah, blah. The whole time I'm bugging yeah. out, like two hours. They do the po- the cr- classic credits biopic thing where we see real footage of the guy yeah. and the real guy sounds crazier than yes. Garfield. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. It's Garfield true. Is, Garfield right. is like rounding the edges on how crazy this dude yeah. sounds. And the real making- guy was... <laughs> A talking stick of cord, like yeah, he genuinely yeah. was. Yes, he was like, it's true. He was like actual Gomer Pyle, like Jim Neighbors. Yeah. insane. And I'm going, wow, actually, what a he, uh, Garfield brought this character to life in a, <laughs> right. in a digestible way now. So thank God they put that at the, they were like, just so you know, he wasn't just off the fucking reservation doing this. Take a look. Yeah. I feel like we're forgetting something. What are we forgetting? That's major pain. Okay, because oh, right. that answers your question, David. Subverting <laughs> how to subvert it, yeah. uh-huh. uh-huh, and do it well. Now, D- which your answer is do it to children. <laughs> Major Pain, which was of course directed by Nick Castle, right? Directed yes. by Michael Myers himself. The oh, shape wow. I've never. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the shape himself. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it, but it's Damon Wayans screaming at a bunch of children, right? That's yep. the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Mm. What is what is that genre? There, it's so recurring in our lives. Um, uh, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but uh, everyone everyone was like, okay, they're a crazy action star or a total badass. It's like, 
all right, now they're a nanny. Now they live in the <laughs> suburbs. Now they're a house cleaner. Now they're a babysitter. It, it's, it's like they just get like it's like let's just get, let, let's give one of these alpha dudes a chick's job and watch how fucking funny it is. <laughs> it's like it's, it's <laughs> truly one of those things where uh, like Twins was Schwarzenegger's highest grossing film up until that point in time. And then I think Kindergarten Cop might have been number two. And if it wasn't, it was so big and it immediately like expanded his audience base. Like, I think there was, was the like, that's the thing. It was, you need one of these. That was the idea. Right. Even if it's not going to be your biggest hit, you need that. It was the quantifiable thing, thing of like, look at how much bigger Terminator 2 got because now kids like him. And now every guy has to go through that. There's the point where it's like, you start out being a badass, then you go back down to the kids, and then you make the badass movies that are a little more family friendly. Right. You know, the classic Matthew Modine arc. <laughs> uh, very similar to that, right? This is the kind of movie the kids love. Yeah. Um, Bro, we're and, talking uh, about how, how iconic this movie is, uh, how iconic uh, Arlie Ermey's role is, how, all this shit, how iconic D'Onofrio's the pile. Yeah, absolutely. And that's half the movie. Less. It's 45 minutes. Yeah. Now, I feel bad because I'm coming on this podcast where people just love to hear my really interesting and insightful opinions. And my take on Full Metal Jacket is the first part's the best part and the second part <laughs> isn't as good. AKA everyone's opinion on Full Metal Jacket. Like, I'm not coming on here. But it's most the first part is in my opinion like knife perfect some of the most incredible stuff Kubrick ever did. I think it's amazing. It, it, yeah. Go Hands on. Down. Talk, John. Talk, John. I'm saying this is one of those movies that when you see it, I saw it young. I was like, a, I was into Clockwork Orange. My, I, I got like the Kubrick box set was like the first DVDs I bought. And I watched this and I was like, I fucking love this movie. And then like three years go by, I watch it again, and you're like, oh, right, they do go to war in the second half of the movie. Like, you, sometimes you remember this movie and you forget about the, uh, the rest of the movie. It all takes place in the barracks in your mind, in, at basic. At, 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 it's at Paris Island, yeah. It's, it's a little bit like uh, Stripes. Except yes! the difference is, I do think the rest of this movie is good. Like, Stripes is a movie where you don't remember anything that happens after basic training because it's kind of bullshit. It's not good, yeah. And it's like right. a, a little misogynistic. And... Right. I, every time I watch this, uh, I am like, huh, the rest of this is better than I remember it being. Like, that's, yes, that's the right. annoying Agreed. part Agreed. of the very obvious take we're going to have here is it's like, on one hand, inarguably the first, first 45 minutes are the best part. But also, the rest of the movie is underrated, but also it can never come out from the shadow of the first 45 minutes. It's it's a crazy dynamic to land in, in that the second half of the movie isn't as strong as the first half of the movie and is still maybe the strongest representation of war ever recorded on film. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like one of those experiences where you're like, oh, man. And, and like. On this rewatch, T uh, Tiff came home during a post-basic training and sat down. And she was like, God, this movie is so fucking good. It's so That's fucking beautiful. And I was like, right. And you didn't even watch the first. So you're not going like, oh, now we're here. Like, you have none of that. If you just sat down at the first, uh, uh, you know, Boku uh, Bucks yeah. scene, if you sit down at that point, you're like, fuck, this movie is magnificent. It's intense and disgusting and magnificent. But the first half of the movie prepares you for all that shit, too. Like, it it's that weird thing yes. where 
if the entire film was one half of the movie, it would probably have a better reputation. Like, even if the films, they cut all of the Paris Island stuff out and they added 20 minutes on with Boku Bucks as the starting point, as you said, Gabrus, I think this movie right. would have a better reputation because it wouldn't be fighting against the idea that it's a disappointment to the standards it sets up for itself. I found some quote that like Billy Wilder said that he thought the first 45 minutes were the best movie ever made. I think there's an argument for it. Like I was watching it again. I threw it on. I've mm. seen Full Metal Jacket a few times, but I'm like, all right, time to watch Full Metal Jacket. I put Steel it book. on. And uh, exactly. Yes, yeah. my steel book. And the for the first time, I'm really thinking about it because I'm watching for the podcast. This is a movie that like my dad had told me all about before I'd even seen it. Like he mm-hmm. described Dude, Vincent Nofrio killing himself. <laughs> like all of it. Like he, I think this movie just really buried into his brain and um, relatable as fuck, David. <laughs> thank you. Um, and the first twenty minutes. You don't even see anyone talk to each other. It's just Arlie Ermy yelling mm-hmm. at them and them marching in formation. The first time anyone even speaks to each other is Modine finally helping, you know, Gomer Pyle, D'Onofrio, like, load his uh, gun. Uh, and at that point, it feels like the greatest act of compassion you have ever seen. Exactly. Exactly. It's so powerful for that very reason. And, like, I was just thinking about how I love military movies. I love war movies. Like, but, you know, you just get a lot of the sort of, like, the guys hanging out. And one of them's like, yeah, well, hell, I'm from, I'm from you know, South Carolina. And this is what I do. And the other guy's like, oh, I'm a nerd. And I'm from, you know, New Hampshire. You know, like, the little, the little sort of privates talking to each other stuff and like we're just not given anything like that we're not given any humanity because the whole point is that this guy is shaving their humanity away like they're not allowed to be humans they have to be you know living guns it's amazing it's amazing and along the to establish that but also to get us to be able to differentiate the bald white people in the movie yes he that this is like this is corny, but it's like an improv opening. He like runs around each character and is like, you are Joker. You are the funny one. You are smart. You are a cowboy. You are the Texas one. You're the black guy. You're the fat idiot that's going to ruin this for us. And it's like, he just runs around and labels everyone. And uh, this is talked about uh, a lot, but everyone is in focus inside the back. There's no, there's no blurriness. Like it just is uh, focus, full focal length. So it's just like, Everyone is on the same level, quote unquote, but Arlie Ermey's running around explaining to us who we need to know to watch the rest of the movie. And and none of these characters have backstory. There's not a lot of conventional characterization, even as the movie goes on. So basically, especially with this starting group, it's like he's telling you what everyone's game is. And the level of characterization you get is like the most obvious joke that the world's biggest asshole would latch onto upon seeing someone and hearing their voice. Right. It's like, oh, you're a gay intellectual because you have like a smart ass answer. Oh, you are a giant slow person because it took you a second to answer. Oh, you're from right. Texas, so you're a gay cowboy. Oh, you're black, so I have awful things to say to you. You, you know? just crystallize it. There's <laughs> yep. like that stand up thing how most stand ups like starting out, you know, I'd say up until someone has like their first special and has really like built an hour that has been out there in the world. Most people open their sets with like, I know what you're thinking. Right. This is what I look like. I chose this outfit, but I have a, I have a joke for it. This is what I sound like, you know? And it's like, he's essentially doing that to them. It's like, I'm going to make the joke 
so the audience gets on my side before they think it about me. And he's doing that to pinpoint characters you need to remember. It's crazy how little we know about everyone. Nothing. A- and then how much it affects you later on in the movie when right. y- and you're like, holy shit. Like you are heartbroken when Cowboy dies. Yeah. Like spoiler. You are heartbroken when a character who you only know their nickname and yeah. haven't even seen for like 20 minutes in the movie. But like because you're following Joker and he's looking for him, you get like in the same level of attachment. And like then you realize, oh, of course they're totally friends. They had like their drill sergeant and one of their like squad mates die in front yeah. of one of them. And like in, in a room that the two of them were just cleaning the day before. Like there's so much going on with still so little info like we don't even know joker's real name until you like see if you catch his crew neck sweatshirt at one point. right right <laughs> and ben, ben for the sake of this episode we're going to retire retire a bit otherwise it'd just be too much of an editing hassle we will oh, call him private joker yes. by name oh yeah no we we're, we gotta we're not gonna do that yeah, it's a it's a different Joker. This this guy actually does not find crime funny. We know we know why he's so serious. We actually have a very good sense. <laughs> um, Full Metal Jacket, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick's film, nineteen eighty seven, yeah. based on the novel The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford. Gustav Hasford. This what is do a you fucking eighties movie. This is an eighties movie. I know. Like it's crazy that this it movie is. came out in the late eighties. Imagine someone's like, "We're having eighties night," and you you put on Full Metal Jacket, <laughs> like or like, "Oh, what's, it's eighties night at the club," and you dress like Arlie Ermy or something, and you're like, "It's an eighties." Like it's so not indicative of the even like because the Kubrick style, of course, too is yeah. not mo- it's not modern in any way. So it feels right. like when you're watching it with the between the music and the the footage and the subject matter, you're like, this. When was this movie fucking made? And then when you realize it came out in '87, you're like, I I was five. What the fuck was? like 20 year olds thinking when this movie came out that must have been crazy well, it is well t- i mean it's it, in no more you can say david well i was just going to talk about like it's this is the time when vietnam movies are suddenly everywhere right because obviously there's the deer hunter and apocalypse now in the late 70s that are sort of the twin like masterpieces but those are very like big operatic unrealistic movies but we're in the realm of, of platoon Rambo. 86 comes platoon yeah. Right. And then in 87, you have Gardens of Stone, Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill, Good Morning Vietnam. Like you have four, like sort of more like this. This is what it was like in Vietnam. Uncommon movies. Valor, like a weirdly of big war. hit that everyone thinks is. Yeah. Uncommon shitty. Valor. Oh, right. Casualties of War. The un- least rewatchable movie ever made. <laughs> Ca- Casualties of War is uh, one of the most upsetting movies ever made. But like, that's what I mean. Like, and, and Born on the Fourth of July, obviously, yeah. is 89 as well. Like, there's that, this whole realm of late 80s movies about Vietnam where they're like, okay, we're going to depict the war in its utter like foolishness and pointlessness and bleakness like there's you know these are not going to be uh like what you've seen before and like we haven't really had that for like the iraq war i guess we sort of we've had a few sort they of didn't major work. movies about i mean like that, like you know? jarhead but, yeah. feels like it's very much trying to be the full metal jacket yes 
of man, its generation. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen on Netflix that there's like five jarheads and yeah. they've completely abolished the idea of like any yes. in, like it's just like jarhead two marine revenge. <laughs> it's just like killing. Iraqi I think people. we've talked about this before, but I think one of them is called Circle of Fire or something like that. Uh, let me look it up. I think it's let the Cole Hauser I... one. Cole Hauser now does a lot of the jarhead movies. Does does he really? Jar, Jarhead, Jarhead 2 Field of Fire. Field of Fire, right? And that's uh, then Jarhead 3, The Siege. Uh-huh. Uh, was there a Jarhead 4? Uh, Jarhead 3 has Scott Atkins. Okay. Uh, wow. Jarhead 4 has Devin Sawa. Um, I mean, Jarhead obviously just a slang term for a soldier, you know, a Marine. So I guess it's pretty, it's a pretty fungible title you can use it however you like jarhead Obviously, 2 field the... of fire bokeem woodbine i'm sorry i just had i to... mean the guy works the guy works the guy will do a good job for you if you ask him to that is a classic guy who will do a Absolutely. good job no matter what the project yeah how, how far away are we from full metal jacket colon hartman rising or say. some shit Five where minutes. like the origin story of <laughs> joker's <Arlie>. revenge yeah. <laughs> what man they should cast fucking modine in retired bit to folio de. they should they should bring all the jokers together yeah. they should do a, a full metal jacket sequel they bring back d'onofrio inexplicably yeah. <laughs> they're yes. just like he's back cyborg Look, he's the right size yeah, yeah. Who cares? they should cross over with other vietnam movies you know, yes. Apocalypse Now oh, meets please. Full Metal Jacket. We need a nomverse. <laughs> yeah. It would be awesome if Joker was on Robin Williams' talk show. <laughs> <laughs> well, j jumping back to what David said about all these Vietnam movies come out, but every one of the ones you mentioned felt like a modern movie when they yeah. came out too, even though it's taking place like ten, you know, ten plus years ago. They always feel they still felt modern. Like uh, the platoon, platoon felt like a modern movie. This somehow feels like, and I think it's because of all the basic training, all the Paris Island stuff, feels a bit like a documentary. Like, like, like it feels more in the moment. And I know we're just, you know, we're talking craft. Uh, like it's Kubrick as well, Godfather of realism. But like he, mm -hmm. he, it. There's something different about this. I mean, obviously, the tone of Good Morning Vietnam is different, but there's something about this movie that all the other movies are like war is hell, man, and this one just fucking feels does. It feels anachronistic, I guess. Is like it, my no, it feels big totally thing. Mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. of time. I, you look at Ebert's review for this movie when it came out, and he says it's one of the best looking war movies ever made on sets and stage, which is like yes. a real backhanded compliment because then he follows it up by saying. It's not enough to compete with the, quote, awesome reality of Platoon Apocalypse Now and the Deer Hunter. Like a lot of the sentiment at the time, even more than the, oh, the first 45 minutes are the best part. When you read reviews from this movie's release is like, well, the rules have changed. We have movies like Platoon that feel so visceral and yeah. real, like the way we're like able to actually depict combat on screen. Kubrick doing this on sound stages isn't the same. Like this movie is not as harrowing Look, in, in its viscerality or whatever, you know? I agree. I mean, I think again, I know I, I be I hate being basic about this movie, but I do think it's weird that it was shot in London. Like, not even fucking Northern England or whatever. They just shot it in London. Wait, but how do you well, know Kubrick that, was, David? Well, two reasons. One, 
I did grow up there. What? But two, I read the dossier as well, uh, uh, which explains it. It's crazy when you see this movie as a, a young person and don't know that there are parts of Vietnam that aren't a jungle. Like I'm, I'm not like yes, I, yes, like, yes, yes. I, that's like, fair. I, right. I, I yeah, because we all have one image of it. Yeah, I'm grown. I'm a grown up movies. now, and yes. I understand how countries look and isn't yeah. always represented in our movies. But at the time, just seeing like a city, like a, and it felt so. And then that kind of felt like one of those powers of the limitations of wanting to only shoot in London. This it is does the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like a stylistic choice, but at the time, people were sort of dinging him by saying like, "That's not how it works anymore." We've seen Platoon. You can't do this now. And he's like, I, he's like, I shot fucking 2001 here. I think we can right. handle. I, I showed you Mars here. I think we can handle Vietnam. <laughs> it's funny to your point about this not feeling like an 80s movie. It's like he only made two films in the 80s. You know, one at the top of the decade, one at the end. It's The Shining and this. And he worked within two genres that were running wild in the 80s. And yeah. the two movies feel so disconnected from all of the trends that were happening in those genres and yet were like big hits. Like th the fact that The Shining comes out in the same decade as like uh, Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street, Street, most Halloween. of the Halloween franchise, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw sequels, Child's Play, like all this shit, right? Not to mention just like the, the endless barrage of Stephen King movies in that decade. And as we're saying, like, Vietnam was like a fertile fucking subgenre in this period. And he's making this movie that feels totally out of time and place with this. I think about, you know, they'll do like, studios will will like reissue all of their dvds for walmart with like the slip covers trying to rebrand them in some way and they'll do like totally totally 80s collection right do you know what i'm talking right. about mm -hmm. to like make it seem like a party i just remember seeing one of those once where it was like paramount had their like totally 80s collection where they redid the cover art to make it all look like the inside of the max from saved by the bell or whatever <laughs> and then sure. including that collection was the accused <laughs> God, <laughs> love love the eighties. And this, I heart the eighties. It feels like what you're saying, Gary. Research like you can't file this in your mind as an eighties movie. Yeah, I like forget. Like I like when I just looked it up, I was like, where did this fall in his? And I was like, his second to last movie. Yeah. Oh my God, this king. This movie is a couple years. Couple years. It's on video in the early nineties. Like that's just so yeah. crazy to imagine. Like. <laughs> And I was a lot like that was my childhood, and it feels insane to, and like Full Metal Jacket was just like in the culture, like you just knew yeah. about it, even though it was like the yes. most adult movie ever. You knew about it as like a child, like instantly, fucking yeah. That the, you could use it as fucking shorthand in Toy Story. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you a little context about Full Metal Please. Jacket, okay? Please. Uh, there's seven years in between The Shining and Full Metal Jacket, mm -hmm. and uh, obviously Kubrick's career slows down a lot, which we've talked about. Like he, you know, he takes longer to make movies. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't just like persnickettiness or laziness or whatever. It's or, or his like you know attention to detail or whatever Kubrick myth you want to run. It's that he's exploring tons of stuff that he can't make. You know, his ambitions are so massive. I feel like mm -hmm. that. He's trying to, you know, in the 70s, he's trying to make the Napoleon movie happen, and it's just right. such a huge ask. And in the 80s, he's trying to make artificial intelligence happen. That's sort of, sort of his biggest unrealized project. And again, he's just running into the technology isn't there yet, right? Like, that's yeah. that's the sort of big problem with AI, which obviously Steven Spielberg eventually makes. 
Um, and then apart from that, he just reads books all the fucking time and is waiting for a book to capture his interests. And he reads the short timers. I'm assuming nobody's read the short timers. I have not read. The short- I have not I have read not. the short timers. I will cop to have having seen this movie ten times and on this yeah. viewing notice that it's based on a story. So <laughs> uh, the, the, the the thing I've never read it. It's very short. I should have maybe thought about reading it. Actually, it's like not even two hundred pages long. It it has the exact same structure as this movie. Mm-hmm. It's three sections. It's like. Uh, you know, uh, boot camp, and then journalism. Then him more. is him as a journalist, mm-hmm. and then the sort of the whole sequence with this with the sniper. Like, and so he's taking the book, and obviously he he co-wrote the movie with Gustav Hasford, who uh, wrote the book. Well, um, but there was a lot of fighting have over a, that. There's credit. a lot of, but but he has a credit. He has a credit. He does. It was, um, I I think they wanted very badly for it to be obviously based on the book by an additional material, and there was an ongoing arbitration fight. Kubrick apparently only met him once, but he certainly likes the book, uh, and I do like his take on it, which is basically like it's not pro-war or anti-war. It seemed only concerned with the way things are, which feels like a very Kubrick. Uh, like th- something that would appeal to him, right? Where he's like, "This is trying to present this in all its frightening realism." Like, th- and then we can we can decide what we do with that information, yeah. rather than like it's a polemical thing. The other thing I saw was that it, this period of time he was kind of looking to make a Holocaust film, and he is such an adapter; right. he never generates his own material. That he kind of was right. constantly on the hunt to try to find the right starting point, and then in that hunt, he finds this instead. And just shifts over, I think, that energy to this. Um, right. But we've talked about, I mean, war is the thing he goes back to most in his He goes back career. to the most. Right. 100%. Right. Uh, Michael Hare, who's the other co-writer, other listed co-writer, he wrote that book, Dispatches, which is about uh, his life as a war correspondent in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like a classic of new journalism. And that's like another thing that Kubrick wanted to adapt. Right. So he's kind of... He's kind of got both those things floating around. And when they um, find the short timers, they're like, well, there's a story here. Right. So why don't we make this the movie? Right. And you can work on it with me. Uh, because Dispatches obviously does not really have like a narrative to it. It's just, it's journalism. It's, it's Yeah, so he that. sort of absorbs the writer from one piece of material to help him adapt a different piece of material. Hare apparently said to him, like, don't meet Hasford, you're not going to like this guy. And Kubrick was like, what are you talking about? I have to meet him. And then he met him and was like, you were right, I shouldn't have met him. I don't like that guy. <laughs> I mean, I think I think you're if you're gonna say Kubrick, I don't know if you're gonna like this. Stanley, I don't know if you're gonna like this guy. You're gonna be right seventy percent of the time, Probably. <laughs> like just rolling the dice. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people get into Kubrick's orbit that he's like, now nah, this guy I like. Um, yeah, he fought for his credit beyond just like additional dialogue or story or what. You know, mm-hmm. he fought for his screenplay credit. He won. Uh, he says he's he for the quote from him is as a little Canuck friend of mine would say, I kicked. They butt. I don't know what that's a reference to. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. My hair's maybe ter- reaction maybe is Terrence and Philip. Is that a Terrence and Philip? <laughs> yes, yes yeah. of course. No, that's what it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. As a little Canadian friend of mine would say, very little. Just a fart noise here. <laughs> so, um, so I said to Stanley, shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hare's reaction is like he deserved the credit. It was not that complicated. Like he doesn't seem too beat up about it. So I don't know. Like Hasford seems to have this take of like I had to fight tooth and nail. And Hare's take is like 
I don't know. I guess so. I I don't mind. And Kubrick's take is like, you know, cut to a gravestone because he's dead. So it, we don't know what he said. Uh, it's, it's funny you say that because on this on this watch, I was most attracted to or most drawn in by the journalism stuff, like the middle chunk. And it's not just because mm-hmm. of how attractive Lieutenant Lockhart is, uh, but the like it. Uh, the in the rear with the gear, uh, quoted by StarCraft uh, Marines. Um, uh, yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> Gabrus. All right, maybe we played each other on Battle.net sometime in the 90s. Yeah, let me know if you ever Who's went up say? against Uncle Meat Man on Battle.net. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing a surprising st- choice of username. <laughs> I've been playing StarCraft 2 for 20 years. I still, pl- I, I just <laughs> played the campaigns over the pandemic just to stay alive. Uh, hell yeah, but uh. I, the journalism shit drew me in so much more than previously, and that's because mm. in my age, since watching this, I went from being like a warhead to being like and it's, a podcaster, it's funny, to being a podcaster, <laughs> to being into journalism, yes, and yes. you know, having leftist point of view. And it's like all of a sudden now, I'm like intrigued by Joker's kind of rebellious attitude, and like his like intellect appeals to me more than like when you're a kid. You like Animal Mother because he's like such a badass, right? And you like right. lose all the con, and then when you watch it again, you're like, I Terrifying. can't believe I like that guy. <laughs> like like uh, that guy has <laughs> way too many bullets on his person. Way too many. Way. <laughs> way you don't think he needs that many? No, I don't know. Based on think- based on how he's going, he I don't think he has enough based on his behavior in the in the back. He he, he does shoot them a lot. I'll <laughs> yeah. say that he, does, he, he doesn't just hold on to them. them. I mean, he's wasting them. But he's, he's not, wasting them. He's not right. wasting them carrying them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, he uses them all. Um, <laughs> he does use them. <laughs> I found I found the the bit on the Hasford Kubrick thing I was looking for. So so Michael her wrote a book about Kubrick. Dispatches. Oh, about Kubrick. Oh, sorry. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh and this is his called My Buddy Stan. <laughs> no, I think it was called Kubrick, Kubrick by right? her. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I I'll just read this uh, verbatim. Hasford was, by her own description, a scary man. This is a a Guardian piece when the book was coming out, okay? Mm -hmm. Hasford was, by her own description, a scary man, a big haunted Marine whom Kubrick was determined to meet. I advised him against it, recalls her. I told Stanley I didn't think they'd get on. Kubrick insisted. Hasford duly came over to Britain, and there was a dinner during which Kubrick passed her a note saying, I can't deal with this man. (laughs) From then on, Hasford was dismissed from the Mastro's presence. I can't. I know. Kubrick does just seem like the fussiest little fella sometimes. It's just so funny. He can't even say it. He has to pass a note. Stanley, this guy's an intense Marine. You're not going to like him. Don't tell me who I'm going to fucking like. Invite him over for dinner. Comes over for dinner. Immediately writes a note. Please get rid of this guy. <laughs> did you guys? Uh, did you guys read the uh, the making of uh, Space Odyssey? That book. Uh, uh, it's no. Fucking- we, we- awesome and has a lot of like perspective a lot of perspective on kubrick it's really yeah. fucking uh you're like you hear a lot of these weird fickle things where he's like well get back in the ape suit you know and like you like guys are like fainting and shit like his energy towards everyone is so and even just hearing interview like reading s- snippets of interviews from d'onofrio and joker uh, and modine and all that you're like man it must have been 
one of those things where if you didn't know in the moment, like like you would be like, I fucking hate this guy. Like it would be yes. so easy to hate Kubrick if you do, like if you don't have the zoom, if you don't have the vision, which I wouldn't have had if I was cast in Full Metal Jacket. But I think even if you do have the vision, like Modine, you know, who so much of his life since this movie has been defined by this movie right, right. and continuing to talk about this movie, uh, releasing his diaries it, on it. App. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, he has that attitude. I feel like Malcolm McDowell talks about it the same way where it's just like, I knew this guy was a genius. I put myself in his hands. I submitted myself to the process, you know? Yeah. But even if you do have that perspective, I do think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to like detach in that way while also staying invested in your work. Even if you go into this being like, it's Kubrick, he's a genius. By day 200, you're probably like, I don't fucking care. There's no, you know... Like the two casting stories on this movie, I find really interesting The the sort of almost stories are that he really wanted Anthony Michael Hall to play Joker. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That was his first That's choice. Cool. He saw 16 Candles. He was like, this guy's an incredible actor, which I think he's yeah. right. About. I think he's it's right. Fair. I think he's right. I don't with hindsight. I think they crushed it with Modine. But... I think Modine is a yes, works. Modine's well. incredible. In this it, it's movie. one of those yeah, things where you, you wish there just had been a Anthony Michael Hall Kubrick collaboration, especially if Kubrick did recognize in him that thing. And it's like the the soft era of Anthony Michael Hall before he overcorrects and feels like he needs to be a tough guy to prove that he's not a dork so anymore swole. for the remaining 40 years of his career. Um, <laughs> so swole. But, but he is like incredible in those Hughes movies. And you're like, yeah, he's good. no one else really kind of got how to use him in that uh, era. But there were like eight months of negotiations until it finally broke down. And it's always very unclear. I and mean, when Anthony McCall does interviews about it, they're like, did you ask for too much money? Was it like a creative thing? Was it like the length of shoot? And he's always kind of like vague about what it was. But you can almost imagine just his reps at the time being like, Anthony is making like hand over foot being the nerd in these comedies that we can shoot four of a year. Yeah. And, and we've got 12 offers taking us through the mid 80s uh, right. where it, it ends with you having six homes. Anthony right. Michael Hall. How do you feel like, you we know, hand and over it's to like this guy, like who knows what comes of it? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, he was like 18 years old yeah. as well. Like, I mean, he would have been striking in that movie and in, in his way he would have yeah. been the the other one is rico ross who plays uh frost in aliens uh was an american actor who went to england because he felt like uh in america and hollywood he was only getting uh offers to play gang members so he like went to england uh went to drama school and became like an american actor that english productions could use and then mostly became kind of a military guy instead uh he got offered a part in this i don't know which character he was supposed to play uh, I guess I would be uh, payback or not payback. Uh, 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 hardball is that what his character's name is? Eight ball, um, unfortunately. Eight ball. <laughs> it, it's not that character. It, it, the character name I saw was a different one who I don't know if the character was mostly cut out or the role is so small I didn't observe it. I want to say like Cleveland is who he was supposed to play. Um, but he got offered the part and then he got offered the part in Aliens. And it was like this coin toss thing for him. It came down to Kubrick had an eight-week hold on him, and there was one week of overlap between uh, Aliens and Full Metal Jacket, and they were trying to negotiate the two. 
And eventually it was just like, you're dealing with two different tyrannical control freaks. Neither well, one is going to give an inch to the other one. You have to pick one. He picks aliens. And it's he was a coin, like, coin to, imagine having a coin toss in your life where it's like, which iconic film do you yes. want to be a part of? Which iconic film directed by someone who is a proven master would you like right. to be in? But Ideally also, both. Like, it's like a ah. lunatic. It's going to be like an incredibly <laughs> difficult production. But the thing was, Kubrick was like, we can't give you up a week early, but but we need eight weeks. And then he said that when aliens came out in theaters, in 86, Full Metal Jacket was still filming. <laughs> right. It was of one course. of those things where it was like, he thought he could do both, maybe. Uh, and well, he went like, through... It's, it's legendary that, like, Modine got engaged, married, pregnant, and had their kid and, like, celebrated yes. the kid's first birthday all while shooting Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, two years, right? I mean, another crazy stat I, I saw was that uh, Arlie Ermey got in a really bad car accident, and couldn't yes. film anything for four and a half months, but it happened at the point in production where they had filmed everything but Arlie Army's footage. <laughs> yeah, he got hurt like after they shot Vietnam. Like, yeah, like, it, <laughs> basically, it, it massively delayed production. Yes, we. I mean, he he also. Yeah, it's crazy that her, he survived that. Apparently, like he should yeah. have died. He kept himself alive, like flashing brights in the jeep, like in in the yes in the account yes. I read. He's just like yes. On, over turned over on the side of the road, broken ribs and broken arm or whatever, and he's just flashing the brights on his car, trying to stay away uh, on the jeep, right, staying like away. Broken so. ribs, Correct. puncturing organs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in Epping Forest, which is not like a place that anyone is in in the in the yeah. nighttime. Like that's. that's well, uh, what yeah. the fuck was he doing out there? We don't even have to get into that. But, but I think you were about to say that's why he like doesn't move his arm in the movie. Yeah, there's like a whole chunk where he's not moving one, one of his arms, but, yeah. and I mean it plays into the character because he doesn't really move a lot uh like without the exception of walking and jog man talk about this long ass production what if you're not arliss howard matthew modine or vincent d'onofrio you are fucking guy number 10 who's just got to do push-ups and jog all thing. day long. i, oh, I think that's basically God. what rico ross's thing was gonna be i mean i yeah. my understanding is rico ross auditioned for like uh, uh drake uh, in aliens yeah yeah, yeah. He, and then they cast the other guy and they were like, we'd yeah. like you to play one of the Marines. And he's like, eh, I got an offer from Kubrick. And Cameron was like, I will promise you have dialogue in this. Right. He's like, I will create Frost. I will give you the Arturian Poontang joke. I will give you beats. <laughs> I, I assure you, you will not yeah. just be the guy in the background. But yeah, these guys just had to fucking be here for 18 months or whatever. Well, but also, come on. I mean, like, just think about how he hasn't made a movie in seven years yeah and it's like hey stanley kubrick is making a, a war movie it's like oh shit a war movie he's made war movies before and he needs like every you know young actor below the age of 28 to to on like everyone must have wanted to oh be yeah a full metal jacket right it must have been one of those things where it's like holy shit you know you only get so many bites at that apple they this was an early case of letting people submit auditions through videotape like having a pretty open audition because they needed right. young people and they got 3000 submissions which yeah this created one of my favorite early viral videos is that dude and I'll send it to you guys if you haven't seen it or don't remember it it's a dude's audition tape for uh 
full metal jacket and he's like at a Sears like with a ladder and his like leg is up on and he's like hello Mr. Kubrick <laughs> it's like how it begins and then he like talks about all his acting training and it's in it's like pure like unsheathed like uh, actor ego stuff and it yeah. was just mm. I, I remember watching it in like 07 and everyone just like cackling about it so I'll, I'll track wow. it down hello Mr. Kubrick yeah, you also have to think like at this point, the Leon Vitali stuff has sort of already happened. So any young actor is viewing this partially as like, this is an education, you know? Right. Like, it's not just that I want this opportunity as an actor. I understand that what I'm signing yeah. up for here is the idea of like studying under this guy. Uh, Leon Vitali is like a uh, f- filmmaker or whatever that, that documentary is about. Yeah, him. film like, worker. Yeah. Film who, worker. Ah, oh, right. fucking love that. That right. was so good. Who plays like Barry Lyndon's stepson and was uh, like a young actor who then gave up his entire acting career to be Stanley Kubrick's executive assistant for the rest of his life. You know, was just like, I'm so enamored of this man's process. I just want to serve him. This man, that's a fucking the sign of a true artist. Like, all right, I completely switched mediums to just like right. carry, just to be around talent, just yes. to be around genius. Like, it's so right. fucking crazy. Right. I think Modine talks about this movie that way too. Not that he wasn't like in it as an actor, but that it was like, well, the main thing was me studying Stanley Kubrick for two years. Right. Oh, so fucking cool. Yeah, it's probably pretty cool. I mean, probably a good time. I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of stories. I mean, the. You know, he's sitting there, he's playing chess. He's still Stanley Kubrick. He's the same, you know, grumpy genius. Griffin, do you think it was a union, like a SAG movie? Because that's, uh, this is what I was thinking the whole time about it going over is like, yeah, these guys, they're getting a fucking weekly rate for two years is sad. Like, I, and I get a lot of these people have other movement in their sure. career. But for me, if I accidentally got locked off in London for two years working on a war movie, I think it would be the best thing that's happened to my career. Oh, <laughs> be in great shape. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, running yep. around. Yeah. <laughs> a lot I of jogging. Know, you know, because I know that's the reason that. Um, Lucas kept filming in London for as long as he could. Yeah, he probably does not have to abide the, by the unions. Yeah. I, I just know knows, people yeah. were like crazy underpaid on on the Star Wars movies up through like Phantom Menace, and that it, the mm. unions are are more fungible there at least were at this point in time. Yoda was living out of his car. It's yeah, crazy. I also think there's a difference between if like someone comes to you and they're like, you booked a movie you are guaranteed two years of work and you're like, hell yeah, here we go. Steady paycheck versus like, right. The Rico Ross story is so telling that they're like, Oh, we'll shoot you out in eight weeks. Right. You know, and he, that, that no one here thought they were signing up for this long. And if you're saying someone's going to be shot out in eight weeks, that is, there's two halves to the movie that are, or, you know, three parts of the movie right. where it's three fully different casts. Like Joker ju- jumps around first and third has Joker and cowboy. Yeah. Uh, the middle one has Joker and rafter man. The, the third one rafter, like rafter man's in two and three, but, but if, if, you're if, right. It mostly switches up. Yeah. So if you were like, <laughs> if you're stuck there for two years and you're in one third of the movie, that's also yeah. crazy too. Yeah, and it's like, he's already had several movies run this long, and yet he, by all accounts, is still going into it being like, no, we're going to do like a normal shoe. (laughs) None of that Kubrick shit. (laughs) This war movie of mine. Okay, let me give you more context here. Uh, I like this quote. I like Kubrick talking 
you can hear kind of the exasperated sigh. If I'm forced uh-huh. to suggest something about the deeper meaning of the story, I would have to say that it has a lot to do with the Jungian idea of the duality of man, altruism and cooperation on one hand, aggression and xenophobia on the other. So I guess this is his thing. He's like, I don't want to make a war movie about good and evil. I want to make it about good and evil, right? In the same person, right? Rather than yeah. like good and, and guys the, versus the bad guys. The interplay between the like two. That. Yeah. Right. The line, the line when whoever, I think it's eight ball who animal mother is very racist towards the entire section of that movie. Mm-hmm. But eight ball is the one who defends animal mother to Joker and says, when shit hits the fan, that's the guy you want. And that's like, that's like a weird duality of man moment too. It's like this guy, oh the, yeah. yeah, legendary piece of shit, actually treats me personally awful. But there, I now need to hold two thoughts about this person in my head because he is good and may be the reason I stay alive. And does later try to save him th- to the detriment of the rest of his platoon. But yeah. <laughs> but yes. it, it, there is something about like every single person, like even Pyle is. Uh, bad. Everyone hates him, and he's bad at everything except shooting. And like every like, and so all of a sudden, Arlie, all of a sudden, uh, drill sergeant's like, "Hey, okay, this, you know, maybe there's a side of this guy I like." And we see that so frequently throughout. And like, obviously, there's a straight up monologue about the Jungian duality of man, which uh, yes, which fucking rules as well. <laughs> Just randomly dropped in the middle of the movie, uh, a fucking intense backdrop of like bodies under lies. Uh, and fucking uh, uh, the monologue about the theme of the movie happening in the foreground. Fucking great moment, which I never really hit hit me before. I always thought the peace thing was funny. And now on this viewing, I'm like, fuck, that's heavy. <laughs> we we just recorded the episode this week. And I know, Gabriel, you've seen this movie as well. So, I mean, I'm just putting these two films together because I've seen them within the same seven days. But it, it, it's the thing that like Woman King goes into a lot as well of like how much you have to break your brain to survive an environment like this, right? Like, you know, the the pile uh, suicide is like shocking, but then it's almost more shocking that more people don't kill themselves in this environment. The way right. this film Why depicts- Why would anyone like this? Right. Yes. Yeah. Like thriving in this environment is a weird human human failure as well. Like it's like there's something like if you did well in at Paris Island, that's like a bad sign as much as uh, killing yourself. Well, but that's why Joker is such a fascinating character. Yeah, like Joker is clearly smart, right? And Mm -hmm. he is clearly an intellectual. And we don't know that because he says anything in the first chunk of the movie, except for that he doesn't believe in God, right? Mm -hmm. Except for that moment. But like, you just know it because it's Matthew Modine and you can just tell. And he seems to be able to let the basic, uh, you know, basic training just kind of pass through him. Like, for whatever reason, like, he's just turning off his brain and he's just like, okay, fine. I'll just do whatever this guy tells me to do. And emerge on the other side of a capable journalist of sorts. Like, and then that's how he's perceiving Vietnam for so much of it. He's just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. This is, I don't think this is good, but also I'm unmoved by it in a weird way. Well, I would uh, assume, which is very powerful to watch. He got drafted. He's like there against his will. A lot of people One were assumes. there against their will. So, right. him choosing to be a journalist is also like, I 
am not going to die on the front lines if I can prevent it. But he's not like, oh my God, this is horrible. He's watching it just somewhat yeah. dispassionately for most of the movie. And it's the whole the, having the peace sign button and and born to kill on the helmet, you know? And the right. more he's pressed right. on it, the more he's like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, what you're saying, Gibbers, of just like animal mother is the example of someone who is built to succeed within this system. And the takeaway right, is it's bad. <laughs> this guy's terrifying. <laughs> right. yeah. But also the guy he's most racist to is like, I mean, in this environment, he kind of needs to be my best friend. Right. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite war movies is, is Black Hawk Down. Ridley Same. Scott's Black Hawk Down. And, and, and yes, incredible movie. I've seen it a million times. Um and Eric Bana's character is sort of similar where everyone's like, look, that guy freaks me out, yeah. but he's very helpful when a million people are shooting guns because <laughs> he seems to be really suited right. to that, that atmosphere. That is when that guy locks the fuck down and starts doing stuff that I'm too afraid to do. Well, what's the thing they say when they're worried about the guys being mentally unbalanced? Uh, uh, class eight or whatever they say. You talking about the guy who jerks off too much? But they say uh, this. They have the, the the story about the guy who jerks off ten times a day. His name the hand job. <laughs> <laughs> no, they say this about a pile too, though. Early on in the movie, when he's like, "I mm-hmm. caught him talking to his gun," right? Right. It's right, this right. thing of like how funny it is to frame anyone as like, "Oh, this guy it might is section eight. Okay. Okay. So it's it's both public housing and uh, psychiatric uh, discharge in the Marines. But yeah, they say, sorry, go on, girl. No, it is that thing where you're just like, well, but the entire exercise of boot camp is essentially trying to break people's brains, right? Sure. We are going to remove your personhood. And to rebuild them. To right, rebuild right. them in the uh, in what we need in a soldier. Right. And then the people who acquit themselves best in this environment are the people who seem to be perhaps a little deranged going into it that their temperament is already a better fit to this uh where there's yeah, well, less it's chick- it's chicken chicken or egg like uh right. like what like if that person was just drafted into the peace corps would they end up being like you know close to god like godly just, you know what i mean just like funny what, to if, be what like, if they did the peace corps the same way though that'd be funny if they they had you know early army screams at you you maggots! You're gonna build houses all over the world. Or I've whatever. said, I've That'd said be before, <laughs> and I don't know anything about the actual. But there should be like a milit, like a non, like a non-military service you could join. Yeah. That has all the same perks as the military, but you go like they send you to Wyoming to help put solar panels in or whatever. And you, it's service. You get like some you get some home loan benefits. You get some college payoff sure. benefits. It's like it's a way for poor people to get out without having to murder on behalf of imperialism. Right. That's the thing we're really looking for. Yeah. It's like that's the shit that needs to come around is that you get sent to like, you know, like, all right, now, everyone, we're going to Bozeman and we're going to get water to to the native people, you know, like yes. <laughs> I just find it funny that it's like the section eight threat looming of like this guy jerks off too much. He might be a problem. Piles talking to his gun. Animal mother, that's a good soldier. And you're like, no, you've like made him the right kind of crazy versus the kind of crazy that scares them. You know, the I, apparently the a- animal mother uh, backstory is that he was like a criminal who got uh, like it's not in the movie but he was a criminal sure. who got arrested and was like jail the classic or... jailer jailer army right yeah. choice was <laughs> yes yeah uh, and this is a big thing in the inspection which is just on my mind because I just saw it but you know the way you can't say I you have to say this marine right sure you're, you you're you're literally not allowed to have, be individualistic mm-hmm. you know this this marine needs information 
is how you ask a question, essentially, uh, which I love. Uh, what a crazy thing to train people to shoot guns at other people. Insane. Th- um, there's the moment yeah. that I find so fascinating where I, I forget what the thing is that they're fighting over, but where Arlie Army calls Modine out and Modine refuses to, like, change his opinion and says, like, sir, I think you'll re- respect this Marine yeah, less. The, the, do you believe in God? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's a, yes, it's, yes, yes, yes. And he's um, like, this Marine believes that uh, Drill Sergeant will be unhappy with whatever answer yes. for cowardice of changing the answer or whatever. Like, and that's right. when he gets promoted yeah. to squad leader. Right, and that's the thing where Ermi does not warm up at all, but it's the only time he respects anyone the entire movie where he has to call yes. over other guys and go, like, You've just been demoted. I think this guy's a piece of shit, but he's got fucking integrity. And he's uh, got balls. Yes. One other t- one other time we see the drill sergeant uh supportive and it's when Pyle is hitting uh targets. Oh sure. Uh it's the only other which is very distinctive yeah. in that he's he, like good job. Yeah, it's the only two times it's like when he's like, "Oh, this big dumb idiot I have I'm saddled with at least could maybe be a killer." And I'm happy for that unbeknownst who he may end up be right. killing in the next couple of days. I mean, just the dynamics of that, that Joker or me scene are so fascinating to me because it's like this entire operation is designed to knock all individuality out of these fucking guys. Right. And to just like turn them into weapons. This thing we talked about a lot in the woman King episode where it's just like your job is just to hone every single part of your being into being the most efficient weapon possible. And yet it's like Modine is displaying the kind of intelligence he knows is of value within a battlefield. Yeah. He can't actively encourage it. Right. But it's like, oh, this guy has some level of strategic thinking that is good, even though he's going against what I'm asking him to do. But he's not exactly going against what the drill sergeant taught him. He's playing within the rules of the Marines, but keeping oh, his sure. opinion. So that that's like a yeah. very specific needle thread that he does that I don't think in that moment the drill sergeant, Ermi, is even real. Like, didn't think of that as a possible answer. But it's and when he like, says that, it's yeah. like, oh, fuck. Okay, tough guy. You're right. Hey, and he's like, you know, like you got me. You, you beat you my. Know, yeah. I'm the Sphinx. You beat my right. logic puzzle. Exactly, and it's like exactly. this guy's got upper management potential. Like that's essentially what he's recognizing. So Kubrick considered a number of actors to play Gunner Sergeant Hartman, mm-hmm. Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting to imagine. Ed Harris, who probably would be good. Yes. Uh, but had just decided to take a year off of acting because he had made a little film called The Abyss, which broke his brain into a million pieces. Life's abyss and then uh, you die. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Arlie Ermey had been a technical advisor in Apocalypse Now, Purple Hearts, Boys and Company C, a lot of these Vietnam movies. He was working at a factory as a quality controller. I'm sure he was very chill. He mm-hmm. was like a, a very fun co-worker. Um, and... Uh, he was brought along to interviews with these British soldiers and he, the stuff he would scream in their faces, Kubrick was like, all right, you, yeah, you should. Apparently he initially thought he wouldn't be vicious enough, but then realized, no, obviously this guy is perfect and would write down everything he said because yeah. all the insults came right from him. All these like right. elaborate essay length 
sort of, you know, treatises on what a piece of shit somebody was. Like it's it it is like improv, like you guys are saying. Like it's like this incredible, you know, there's no way he's writing this stuff down, right? He just has some sort of ability to generate but, but streams that, that having of insults. Been said, there is the misconception that his monologues in this movie are improvised, which belies no, like that's not how down. film production right, yeah. works. They would just be like, Arlie, give us a run. And like Leo well, Vitali yeah. would be there like a fucking yeah, and like and like riffing and rehearse like it's rehearsals right. and it's like just go and also I think a lot of it was in like uh, test footage. Th- there's like this legend that there's this video of Arlie Ermy uh, that Kubrick saw of him rattling off all these like insults and scream while being like pelted with tennis balls and oranges and never <laughs> and never breaking <laughs> and then something to the effect of like someone transcribed it and it's three minutes of video but it's like seventy pages of writing or something like there's like all these legends of like what he the output he was putting out and you believe it i also you saying it griffin i had never heard that but i believe if you look at arlie ermy or interact with him when he's not fully in hartman mode you're going i don't know this guy seems kind of like cute and nice right (laughs) yeah it's gabers that story is even wilder than what you heard they hired first this guy tim colseri who ends up playing the the door gunner in this movie the get some guy as much get some right (laughs) that that line is very chilling Yes. <laughs> so he was supposed to play Hartman, right? And Arlie Army was mostly supposed to be a technical consultant. He starts doing all these riffs. They're like, fuck, we should just do this. But his whole fear was that he was going to like clam up on camera. Aside from not being right. vicious enough, it's like, well, basic, the fact that you have this background doesn't mean it will play on screen. Right. You know, things don't translate. So like they would do these sessions where Liam Vitale was the one who was pelting him with oranges or they'd be like, we're going to film you. You have to do all your dialogue while playing soccer. Like they'd essentially <laughs> say the one I heard about the oranges thing was that Liam Vitale was pelting him with our oranges and he had to catch each one and throw it back without missing a word of his dialogue. And if he either dropped an orange or fucked up a line, they had to start over again from the beginning. And Kubrick was like, he can't shoot until he's able to do the whole thing perfectly. Like, he wanted to make sure this guy who didn't have a lot of on-camera experience would not get not only stage fright, but would be able to, like, withstand the technical demands of the thing. So they just made him run his dialogue while playing sports and shit. That. And allegedly, uh, Colseri, the door gunner guy who was maybe going to play Hartman at first, all, had spent like six weeks getting off book on all the crazy monologues, Ugh. too, and then <laughs> had his role changed. Oh, that's a fucking ball buster. It sucks. I mean, look, one. at least they give him like a good moment. Like he has an iconic moment in the film. It is funny to imagine you hear all these stories of like Cooper calling cut and being like, um, uh, Arlie, what's what, what is a reach around? <laughs> right and then Arlie explaining it and then Kubrick yeah. going good leave that in well sir <laughs> but, but also like the Arlie Army stuff is apparently like two three takes like this was where Kubrick was like he was so precise yes we actually didn't he, have he to did do not... it the normal amount right. yeah uh, this is a Kubrick quote that I like acting is an amazing part crazy part magical gift an actor's power rests in the ability to create emotion in himself and thus in the audience the ability to cry at the clack of a clapboard is a strange and rare talent. Of course, drill instructors can do it naturally because they're performers and liars right. can do it because lying is important to the liar. Um, but basically he was just like, you know, I guess realized like you are an actor already. Right. Like I hadn't considered this, but what you're doing is acting. Um, and Ermi 
basically said like what uh, he thought was realistic about Full Metal Jacket, which is what I just remarked on actually. I hadn't put this together. Is that no one's talking? Everyone is just silent. Yeah. And he says most films about boot camp have too much gabbing. That's why they're unreal. Um, right, because they wouldn't be like. They would be scared. You gotta be quiet. Yeah. The other guy's fucking talking. He's in charge of you. <laughs> Shut up. Don't speak. He will cram you into your locker. And that's our introduction to Joker, Private. You know, like we get like we, <laughs> yeah, we like right. Joker chatting is when we learn the rule. Like we learn the rules of like he's the weird one. He's the intellectual. He he's making a wisecrack here, and Arlie Army's about to kill him for it. He becomes it, it, Joker in uh, that's the other thing about this movie. This movie fucking starts yeah oh, this sure movie does. just fucking starts dude yeah. i paused it at one minute and 21 seconds you're in the barracks yeah. <laughs> like yeah. and at and he's at, calling them maggots yes at 19 <laughs> like at like nine seconds their heads are being shaved it's like mgm yeah. into head shaving it, it with that's i was you're just fucking uh, sorry, I, plowed into it sorry go david i was watching this with friend of the show emma stefanski and we were just like wouldn't that be satisfying to be the guy who shaves everyone's head? It just looks satisfying yeah. to just get all the hair off. Doesn't it? Right? Yeah. Doesn't it seem good? Uh, Activate floor. some OCD and shit. The yeah. floor's a the little floor, gross. Though, the floor's no. a little gross. The floor gross. sucks. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I guess you need another guy do, dealing with the floor. You want to you wanna get that. But uh, the, I don't the know, thing man. I read is that obviously when they were filming, they had to shave the guy's heads every single day. Like you shave it again <laughs> right, every right. single day for continuity. The opening of all of their heads being shaved was shot like four months after they thought they had wrapped. He brought them back and was like, I need a new opening. <laughs> so everyone had grown their hair out. And it's and that's like, allegedly why everyone is miserable. Exactly, like, it, it sells. Right. How they look really sad because they genuinely yeah. thought they were out of this thing. They thought they were finally right. done. And he's like, "One last reshoot." Oh God, what a fucking monster! So Griff, obviously, Arlie Army was not nominated for an Oscar for this. I was film, just about to which talk I would about say, this. yeah, a surprising snub. Now yeah. I have two things to say about it. One, we're going to talk about that category briefly. I just wanted to because it is loaded as fuck. Okay. Okay. You can see why he didn't get the nomination. Yeah. Two, and I'm think I, I hadn't thought about this. Lou Gossett Jr. had just won an Oscar a couple of years earlier. Oh, yeah. Gentleman. Gentleman. Hmm. So maybe it was kind of like, eh, drill sergeant. We've seen that. Even though obviously this yeah. is a more realistic, you know, this is not like a bigger character. Do you want to know who the five nominees were, Griffin? Yeah. I, I just want to say two other points there. One, yeah. I think there was a little bit of D'Onofrio Ermi split. I mean, Ermi got a Golden Globe possible, nomination. Possible. And I think Ermi got a Golden Globe nomination. And yeah. he got, I was looking at this here. Hold on. He won a Critics Award, but D'Onofrio won a different one. Ermi won Boston Society of Film Critics. Sure. And then D'Onofrio was nominated by New York. Sure. Um, yeah. But. There's also just the I mean, thing I feel like actors are at a real disadvantage if their part is front loaded in a movie. Like if you look at supporting winners, very often they are people who end the film more than they are yeah, people who I mean, are at like, the opening section. This is one of the 10 most iconic screen oh, performances I in history. Agree. Right? Yeah. It's one of those situations where like it's we ha no one could know at the time that this how iconic this role like right. you know what i mean but if you're like acting wise you're like oh this guy's just screaming at people and it's the first half of the movie and he doesn't have a clip he doesn't have an oscar clip 
Sure. And when also, and also, it's like it was his job, so like right. he's just being himself, but right? Like was possible. It's also just odd thinking, to me because yeah. I feel like in the eighties, I mean, there obviously they're like wins like Hyang S. Nagor for like the Killing Fields, you know, where it's like, oh, this guy wasn't even really an actor, and there are also things like. Um, uh, you know, like Round Midnight and like uh, Barishnikov getting nominated and stuff like that, where it's like sure. sometimes you have someone whose acting isn't their main thing, but there's and this incredible fine. film uh, document right. of their work, you know? Right. And it's a fun nom. I like those noms. Yeah. They're usually like fun. Nom. But here are the five. Okay. Give me the okay. five. The Oscar went to Sean Connery for The Untouchables. Oh, sure. Uh, as sort of combo career win and big yeah. meaty role right just like a uh, dago to bring a knife to a gunfight <laughs> sorry that's, gotta that's do that what he says the one slur i'm allowed to do the so one you one. get the pass on. <laughs> <laughs> uh and then you've got i mean griffin i, I want to it, it is a it is category fraud but one of mm-hmm. your favorite performances ever i would say albert brooks and broadcast news oh uh, yeah i disagree on it being category fraud maybe but that's a tough one i well i I'm not sure how I feel. It's sort of a, it's a, you know, it's kind of a three lead movie. He's sort of a lead, sort of supporting. It, it's one of those you know, things. I mean, the, the part that's weird is that he's supporting and Hurt is lead. You feel like Hurt either they're lead. both yeah. lead or they're both supporting. But exactly. Yeah. But obviously for politics sake, sure. they put sure. the, you know, Marquee Idol as yes. the lead and him as the supporting actor. Anyway, certainly deserves a nomination. Mm-hmm. Then you have Vincent Gardenia in Moonstruck. Now, this is maybe the most vulnerable of these five picks. Sure, but your but favorite I movie. love that performance. Yeah. And he's also kind of there for like all the fucking guys in Moonstruck. Danny Aiello, John Mahoney. Yeah. Nicholas Cage is kind of the lead, obviously. But like, you know, there's just a lot of big watery-eyed italian guys in that movie who we love <laughs> uh-huh. right sure um, you're saying he's he's nominated on behalf of the cast <laughs> yes the over 50 for cast yeah and then the the other two nominees are iconic actors getting their first nominations so denzel washington in cry freedom and okay. morgan freeman in street smart huh yeah you know what i mean like where it's like those actors actually both went on to do better work of although course. those are both good performances but like at the time it's like They're, well holy shit, welcome to the know. club nominations yeah right right and the golden globes are very different it's connery and morgan freeman but then they have Richard Dreyfus in Nuts oh boy. and Rob Lowe in Square Dance the fuck? Uh, and then Arlie Ermey. You, yeah. so, four, it's a weird bunch. Four of the movies you've mentioned in the last minute I have not even heard of. Like, Which uh, have you not heard of? Cry Freedom, the one Morgan Freeman was nominated for. S- Street Smart. And yeah. then what, oh, no, sorry. Cry Freedom. And, and then what was the last one you just said? Uh, it was Square uh, Dance? Square Dance. Square Dance Square and Dance. Nuts. What the fuck is yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, well, so, so Nuts is the movie where Barbara Streisand goes nuts. It's got a great poster. It does. She looks real nuts she on does. it. I gotta tell you. <laughs> she, yeah. uh, I think it's a movie about her trying to be declared mentally incompetent in some kind of a murder trial. It's like a very serious movie. Um, Street Smart is this like Christopher Reeve goes he's a reporter who goes undercover in like the world of hustling and Morgan Freeman plays um, a pimp called Fast Black Smalls. Uh, who's like taking him around Times Square in the eighties, and obviously, like he's the thing that is good about that movie. I think it's a Jerry Schatzberg. Movie. Cry Freedom and Street Smart both sort of have that thing of like, here's a vehicle for a beloved leading man, and then the supporting right. guy just completely steals the movie, right? Like, 
Denzel stealing Cry Freedom from Kevin Klein. And like that was supposed to be Christopher Reeve doing like, I'm going to go a little darker. I'm going to move away from Superman. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, we only want to talk about Morgan Freeman. No one is paying attention to what you're doing in this movie. Now, I have never seen Square Dance. It is from Daniel Petrie, uh-huh. uh, who directed a zillion movies like back in the day. Um, but I don't really know anything about it. It's I think it's set in Texas. We know yeah, Jason Robards, Jane Alexander, coming of age I drama. I, 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 I think... I think Rory, uh, sorry, uh, Rob Lowe plays a character called Rory, who I think like has an intellectual disability. Oh, great. So I, I'm not sure how that plays today, yeah. but I could see that being the kind of thing where in the 80s they were like, oh, oh Rob, good job, very brave performance or whatever. Maybe it's good, but uh, I doubt my it. My guess somehow. is no. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go So that's here. the vibe. Yeah. But uh, it's, that's, you know, so it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it is a stacked year, mm-hmm. but. Arlie Army is good in this movie, as is, as you say, Griff, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty great. I think they might have split. I think uh, the the first the first half of the movie thing, like I was thinking about uh, Mark Rylance, Bridge of Spies, right? Mm. Like an incredible performance and similarly a thing where he just kind of owns the first 45 minutes of the movie. I'm like, I don't know if should've he been wins. Should have been Stallone. Should have been Stallone well, for that one. Wow. I, will, I, will fight, I will fight that. I think that should have been Stallone. The Stallone performance in Creed is incredible. incredible. Yeah. But my, incredible. my point it's is Arguably just, one of his only uh, good ones in his entire career. Oh, yeah. We could have we definitely just been the, hooked him up at that he point. He wouldn't be doing Samaritan now. But, but if Rylance doesn't come back at the end of Bridge of Spies, I don't know if he wins the Oscar. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that he comes back at the end for like five minutes- after being missing for like an hour. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He gets the one knockout punch at the end. Right. Just so you don't forget about it. So him. you don't yeah, forget. I, I get that. It's not like you... Do you think Ermie should come back in this movie and be like, you guys are yeah. good now. Yeah. Great job, if everybody. If he showed up in the clouds and just started yelling, <laughs> yeah. that would rule. I've whipped heaven into shape. St. Peter's a maggot. <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. That's, that's what they should do. You know what's a funny use of Arlie <sighs> Army? I mean, it's what we're talking about, but he plays the ghost version of this in The Frighteners. Uh, that's funny. Yes, that's right. He plays like spooky ghost drill sergeant. We should do Peter Jackson. Yeah, I want to rewatch The Frighteners. I haven't seen that since I was like 12 years yeah, old. Yeah, ripped. Yeah, I remember it ripping. Um. Vincent D'Onofrio, as we said, he was a bouncer, right, at the Hard Rock Cafe, I think. Uh, <laughs> My favorite fact. I've been dying to, like, throw that out, but yeah. Sorry, Ben. Sorry. Okay. Throw it out. Um, and he uh, taped the audition himself and mailed it to uh, all the way to Stanley in England and then put on something like 70 pounds, right? M- like, he, yeah. he put on an incredible amount of weight. Uh, Modine was the, the one who tipped him off. They were buddies. Right. Yes, and and Modine had already gotten the part and was like, you really should get your name in the mix for this. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that's like hard to verify, but it has long stood as like the claim of the most weight an actor has gained for a role. Sure. There was sort of the victory lap of like he gained 10 more pounds than De Niro in Raging Bull. Mm. It also mm. speaks to just like he's got a very different body type. You yeah, know? I mean, D'Onofrio is like... Is like seven inches taller than De Niro right. or yeah. something yeah. crazy yeah. like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> right. De Niro is very it, short. It lends Pyle's size in this movie. I, I really like I, I was saying earlier, I got really connected to the journalism section in the middle because mm-hmm. I felt the most seen. Like I was like, oh, this would be like my energy there. But the fucking pile 
his size makes him so sympathetic and scary at the same time. And, it's and such, the shaved head. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all together he has this giant evil baby look, right. which just works so powerfully for the role of Lawrence or uh, of Pyle, where you're like, you're like, I want to help this guy, but also I don't want this guy anywhere fucking near me. D'Onofrio talks about he he said that when he was filming this movie for whatever 16 years of his life where he had to maintain this look um that that people would talk to him more slowly right i believe it that that he, just with this size and this shaved head and when he still got the sort of baby face thing there is that odd quality of something about him seeming simultaneously very very innocent and and deeply cursed and deranged at the same time it's also wild to be like when does Adventures in Babysitting come out? Hmm. Uh, Adventures in Babysitting is 1987, same year. Okay, so same year as this. Who knows? You know, probably shot schedules. like two years later or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. But but for those who have not seen it or have not seen it recently, the bit in Adventures in Babysitting is he is like a guy who works at a parking lot. But the little girl in that movie is obsessed with Thor, Marvel's Thor, and she thinks he looks like Thor. And it's it's D'Onofrio as like presented as the ultimate beefcake. Here is like a golden god, D'Onofrio right. with long blonde hair, ripped. It's it's wild how like fundamentally different he feels in these two films. And it's not just a difference of 70 pounds. It's like his aura is different. Yeah. Fuck. He's really a great act. Like this is one of those movies, I, I, one of those moments I, I think I talk about every time I'm on this podcast and I think I even already said it this time. This is one of those movies where you're like, that's why this guy worked forever. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. you're like, yeah. I, you, yeah. he does some great work down the road too, but nothing that Men you're like, Black. yeah, Men in Black is maybe his second best role behind Pyle. Uh, it's, you know, like when you're growing up, you're like, this guy's in everything and he's just like, fine. And then when right. you're like, oh, I see, like, I always think about that. The Sopranos will do that to you or The Wire will do that to you. When you like rewatch those shows, you're like, now I know why everyone likes this guy. He like did this cool thing. Like if you're coming on to someone's career late and then catch one of their early roles, it really explains everything to you. I, absolutely. It, I mean, the thing is like D'Onofrio is, uh, has done a, like a tremendous amount of great work over decades, as we've said, but this is truly one of those lifetime past performances. Yes. And you even feel it where it's like, he's gone through varying levels of like bankability but he Whoa. never stops working because it's just like, well, everyone knows he's got this in him. Isn't this insane, Ben? I just he's sent you the picture. Hot. Right? Damn. Yeah. But like it's really surprising. You just don't think that D'Onofrio could be positioned in the same category as Chris Hemsworth. But you're like, he was essentially the first guy to play Thor in a he, movie. He, he's so statuesque, you know. I mean, he's so tall. I guess that's yeah. that's what he's working with. Yeah. And you forget because uh, I forget personally because I just watched Full Metal Jacket two nights ago. But you forget that he has like a chiseled leading man jawline. But just right. yeah, in the like and in David's background, it's most apparent the open mouth pile face. Not That's not the, the thing. Not the crazy Kubrick face, which he no. also succeeds at greatly. But the open mouth, big dumb baby face that Donofrio has on is yeah. unreal. It's like but, to live but, like that. yes. And like his eyes are just dead. I, I, you know, the whole movie, it's that thing where you're talking to someone and you can't figure out if they understand what you're saying or not. 
just his introduction with Ermi trying to get him to stop smiling and he cannot. It's so, it's genuinely really funny. You immediately start giggling because you understand the feeling of like, the more this guy screams at me to stop laughing, the funnier it would get. Like, God, you also just, would be inescapable. We were asked to leave Easter Sunday Mass one time because me and my brothers could not. My dad, my dad wasn't there, the real disciplinarian. My mom was there, and, and my littlest brother farted, and the three of us could not <laughs> stop laughing about it. Yeah. And like other people, and like we're in church, so it's even harder not to not laugh. You know what I mean? Like it's that same energy. And my mom's going, "Knock it off!" And then like an old lady's coming over, and it's like, "Could you please have your boys be quiet?" And we're like, well, if Jason wouldn't have farted, like we can't stop. <laughs> that night, my dad gets home from work at midnight. This is like uh, too dramatic for real life, but like we all have to get up and stand in the living room, like drill sergeant style, and get yelled at by my dad uh, because he's an angry alcoholic and the punishment <laughs> guy. Uh, but he's doing that, and me and my brothers are locked exactly back into we can't laugh yeah. and now yeah. it's even more scary and it's like twice in one day we have to live the whole like you're, in, you're trying to lock it up and it's impossible so I relate hard to pile in that moment and not just because I'm fat and soft <laughs> you have to imagine that like if you're seeing this in a theater as a new release the audience is laughing up until that point right like yes. what Ermi's doing is so over the top right. so extreme so relentless that like the whole audience is cackling uncomfortably but when you cut to D'Onofrio and he's laughing now he's the first person on screen who also recognizes the absurdity of this it feels like cathartic like not only like I understand that's what I would be doing in this situation but it's like this is what I'm doing now watching this right how is everyone else able to maintain their composure and then there's the tension of like even when he's being choked he can't stop you know it's like yes it's impossible for him to stop and I, I do love that Ermi is like, I'm not going to choke you. You're going to choke yourself on yes. me. So I am not yes. culpable for what is happening. It's great. Right. Uh, right, right. The, yeah. the shift of choke yourself, reaches for his hands. You like, fucking don't touch idiot. me. My hands. <laughs> then he reaches for Ermi's hands. He's like, don't fucking pull my arms towards you. <sighs> no, you, you will. You will your get neck. down. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So fucking crazy. You will do all the work. The bag of oranges thing is like so brutal. You know, it's just because, as you said, you have this moment of compassion between uh, Pyle and Joker, and then just that hazing moment. You mean the the soap party? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Soap. Yeah. Yes. Blanket. They call it a blanket party. Right. Yeah. Oranges are famously the ones that, if in a towel, wouldn't leave a bruise. I know that. That's why I assumed. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't, yes. I don't think they have a lot of oranges on hand. <laughs> at the, at the, well, Leon Vitali was fucking throwing them at Arlie that's Army. They, they had, they're, they're all smashed. They're all on the floor. Well, let's see, use them all the exactly. You fucked up. Yeah, that sequence hit me so fucking hard on this. Yeah, movie. horrible. Like his his acting of being in pain after the fact, and Ugh. like this whole time you're kind of viewing Pyle as a baby in yeah. the pity way and the like annoying way of like oh this bit, and then when he's like literally in his underwear on top of a bunk bed literally crying like a baby and you're like oh my fucking god like he's been dehumanized like back to zero you know what I mean like he's been brought back to being a a newborn and he's reborn as an absolute fucking psychopath right well it's like right yes you know a he's in a tremendous amount of pain right 
But yeah. but B, it also just feels like he's finally releasing all of the abuse he's been suffering for who knows right. how and, long. And I think right. the Joker thing is like, and Joker even feels that like, right? That's like this final is straw. T- yeah, it's the final straw of like shit. Everyone, because he said earlier, everyone hates me. You yeah. hate me. Oh man, uh, is is Private Pile's uh, voice up there with? Uh, Buffalo Bill's voice from Silence of Lambs of like <laughs> voices you kind of want to do and are iconic. Ted Levine would work in this movie for some reason. Actually, he'd be great. He would. He could be a great rafter man. Here's a good. Yeah, he would be. Yeah, there you go. Uh, here's a good D'Onofrio uh, quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, before one scene, Kubrick said, "I want you to be big, Lon Chaney big." They sh- they shot three takes and then they sat down and watched the tape. And they were sitting next to each other. And after the third take, Stanley took his fist and gently rubbed it against Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent has never forgotten that. It was the approval from Kubrick. That's all That's, that's all he would sweet. do. He would just give you a little. Uh, and the other thing D'Onofrio says is like, he was very supportive. We used to have conversations in the trailer. We never talked about the project. We would just talk about boxing or football or whatever. Like that was that was the vibe. The other thing I saw is that D'Onofrio was like studying Lon Chaney the entire time. Like that was the guy he was sort of trying to build his performance off of and and had never That's expressed that to Kubrick. So when Kubrick gave him that direction, it was yeah. like, okay, it's working. Hell yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That kind of rules. Another thing that stood out for me a long time ago, I watched a director's commentary. I can barely remember. Oh, it's not even director's commentary. I watched the commentary with the mm-hmm. screenwriter, D'Onofrio, and I forget who else is in there. Uh, and D'Onofrio says he's listening to No Woman, No Cry a lot in between takes wow. on his headphones, which is just like interesting choice. But then you sort of get it like weirdly like and maybe I'm just like you know, want to get it. So I'm pretending I get it, but it like, it makes total sense. It it does. Yeah. It's like soft. It's, it's like soft. It's upsetting, but it's also very gentle. Like there's something about it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kubrick says Matthew Modine is as if Gary Cooper and Henry Fonda had a baby. High praise. Um, Modine, three of his brothers and one of his sisters served in Vietnam. So he said, like, I told, I just grew up with Vietnam. Like Jesus. we'd listen to the radio, we'd listen to the body count is how he puts it. I was, you know, old enough to understand what was going on. I was probably interested in the role because I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, says uh, he has this long. Do you, did you read the thing where he tells the joke to Kubrick Griffin in the, in the, no. in the dossier? All right. Well, you know, he he goes over to Kubrick and he's like, I'm going to tell you a joke. You're dead and you're up in heaven and Steven Spielberg has just died and he's being greeted at the gate by Gabriel and Gabriel says, "Dog, God likes a lot of your movies and he wants to make sure you're comfortable. Is anything you need? And Steven says, well, I always wanted to be Stanley Cooper. Could I arrange that? And Gabriel says, you know, Steven, why would you ask me that? You know, Stanley Kubrick doesn't take meetings. And then the second part of the joke is that they go around heaven and Steven sees a guy wearing an army jacket with a beard and he says, look, there's Stanley Kubrick. Can I say hello? And Gabriel says, that's not Stanley Kubrick. That's God. He just thinks he's Stanley Kubrick. And and, and Modine says, Stanley liked that joke. So there you go. Stanley had a sense of humor about him being God. No, he's obviously he has a, a wryly funny guy. I think. Yeah, I, that that's something that picked up. I picked up on this uh, viewing too. It's and uh, besides the obvious humor in uh, the, uh, someone berating someone else, <laughs> mm. besides that humor, the back half of the movie 
it has like the wise ass humor in the second act with the journalism stuff. You're like, you get like a lot of like the cheeky because now it's like the smart guys hanging out in the back, and that, yeah. y- there's humor in that being funny that, to Jay, what's his name, John Terry, who's the the editor in chief, right? Uh, you know, they're yeah, absolute being to him. fucking hunk, uh, absolute fucking John Terry hunk. hot. Very uh, objective, hot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Objectively, like when he's on screen, I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's what movie stars look like. J- J- Jack's dad from Lost, right? Yeah. He's best known as Jack's dad from Lost to, uh, to our also, generation. Has yeah. aged beautifully. Fucking silver fox. Yeah, <sighs> he did he did age very nicely. It's true. He also he's in ER for first ER super fans. Um and he would often play like really dark guys, much like you know, like Jack's dad on Lost. Yeah. And you see him in this and you're just like why wasn't this guy a huge movie star? He's so handsome in right. that, like, totally, like, you know, cut chin, you know, perfect face kind of thing. I don't know. I think I he's the know. drunk absentee father in uh, The Big Green as well. That's uh, right. He is. Yeah. The soccer movie? <laughs> yeah. 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 With, uh, with Gutenberg? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, he, he, incredibly good. H- yeah. Humor in the third part, in, in, in the shit, Rafter Man on... Like I never picked up on how funny of and an evolution that this character has, and it's so it's so fucking. I mean, we have the we have the funny scene in the bunks where it's like you never saw action. The th- we set up the thousand yard stare that we've already seen a couple of times, right. and now we have named it, and then we will get to see it again from other characters. But Rafter Man kind of being like a soft, weird photographer, you know, kind of not, and then. When they're doing the documentary and he's all of a sudden super, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, when shit hits the fan, I'll put the camera down and go to the gun. And you're like, you fucking lie. And then later on, he's literally like kills a fucking young. He has to. It's not like he's a murderer, but he kills a young woman. And like, that's his evolution is that he kills yeah. a 15 year old girl and is a hero for it. But he goes from like, like camera job, guy barfing in the helicopter to like and that. That character, that's such a rich, funny character that you just meet as dumb photo friend of Joker. And by the yeah. end of the movie, he's like indicative of what the war can do to a person in a different way than we see in, on the other people. Yeah. This actor retired from acting, has not appeared in anything since 1999, is now referred to as the king of Hollywood headshots, became a photographer yeah, and is apparently the best headshot photographer around. Well, he has a lot of experience. He has nine cameras on him in this movie. I know. So he, he must have, and and you and you heard it's a two hundred day shoot. So, homie got some practice with the <laughs> with the Canon. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, headshotphotography.com is his website. He never. Wow. 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 Early URL grabber. Yeah, the, the ongoing sort of like discourse of like, did Kubrick have a sense of humor? Was he funny? This and that sort of shit. I do feel like now having watched all the movies rewatched for you know this mini series and everything I, f- I i rank strange love lower in the pack of movies i find funny by him like i i i know what you're saying barry linden this shining uh even clockwork eyes wide orange. shut clockwork orange to a degree like i think that run uh, it's is all incredibly so mordant humor. funny yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and maybe just more my sense of humor but sure. i find myself oh, actually indeed. laughing at these movies more <laughs> than strange love where i watch it and i'm like this is funny you know but you have people giving comedic performances you have more conventional jokes 
and, and like, all the other movies you described, the comedy comes as tension cutters in a way that would hit, would and, make and him hit a little him, harder. And him like weaponizing his status as Kubrick. Like how much of the comedy in this movie comes from song choices? Yeah, the song where choices. Where he cuts I mean, and ending, what he cuts to. Ending on the Mickey Mouse march, stuff like that, where you're yeah. just like, but like, I feel like what you're saying, Griff, you're, it's like, you're not saying like, uh, you know what, Dr. Strangelove is mid humor wise. You're more saying like, Kubrick's sense of humor makes the most sense when he is directing a horror film or war yes. film. Or, yes. you know, that is where his it just perfectly matches with the kind of very, very dark humor that he obviously has right. within him. I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a great comedy. It's a great film. Right. It's very funny. But I think it it is sort of unsettling in its trying to be a comedy or whatever. Yeah, and it's know. it's also, like, I think by his own admission, it's like, uh, this isn't my kind of comedy. I will let Peter Sellers figure this part of the movie out. Sure. Right. Whereas the comedy yeah. he ahead, is able Peter. to exert as yeah. a director in the other five movies I just cited is, like, putting very earnest, impassioned, committed performances that are not winking at all in the center of the film and then building the humor of contrast around them. A little bit of context... That on something we've already talked about, Kubrick told Ken Adam, his famous mm. production designer, um, you need to find every location within a 20 mile radius of my home, Great. Uh, which was basically the same thing he told him for Barry Lyndon. But I think, you know, with Lyndon, they did eventually go to Ireland and stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, they almost entirely uh, used London and its suburbs to be South Carolina, to be Vietnam, to be, yeah. you know... They have fucking helicopter shots where they're going over the jungle. That's like, I assume, the freaking Lake District or all, whatever. All of the battlefield sequences were shot in Kubrick's kitchen. <laughs> uh, he just set it on fire. Light it up. Like <laughs> you know, like, His backyard is fully yeah. on fire. <laughs> all right. Action. <laughs> I just didn't want to have to commute. Um. The boot camp they use like a British territorial army base, uh, so that mm -hmm. makes it you know it's it's a boot camp. Like I, you know you don't really need too much there. Uh, the most interesting part is all the Tet Offensive stuff they shot in Beckton, which is basically like in the Docklands, uh, which is like at the time in the eighties, this like abandoned industrial area, like a very depressed okay. industrial area, and all that that does when you're watching, you know, the the, the stuff where they're like. It's dark and they're shooting and it's this, just this like crazy bombed out kind of like urban landscape. It does work, but as you were saying, it's very it's it's a very urban uh, war environment versus almost yes. every Vietnam movie we see that's like obviously been shot in like the Philippines or whatever and is like taking advantage of like a jungle. But, landscape. but that is weirdly what works to its advantage. Is like the yeah. the actual it's Vietnam different. city stuff in the movie is really good. And the other yeah. movies don't really try for that as much. Yeah, it's right. all it's all jungles and hooches and all that stuff. Right. This uh there's a sequence where when they throw the smoke to hide from the sniper, I don't mean to jump around too much, but when they throw the smoke oh, to whatever. hide from the sniper and they sprint into vanishing horizon, mm. like that shit you don't like the follow shot of these guys just disappearing into it, it's so yeah. real, so ham-fistedly metaphorical but like also at the same time hits you where you're like shit these guys are like running into not existing anymore and then you know, a handful of them will no longer exist after this moment the moment they send eight ball out and you're just watching him get smaller and smaller in the frame going in and you're just like i know what's gonna happen here well also also it's like unspoken there's a lot of spoken racism in this movie and then a lot of unspoken racism like the idea 
first of all, the name eight ball is a classic uh, racial uh, uh, term. Mm -hmm. And then also sending him out alone. Like it feels, it feels so fucked up. Uh, And the the other cool thing about that, and this has nothing to do with the race stuff, but I'm just, while it's on my mind, watching Cowboy climb the ranks in within 16 minutes of the movie, he goes from like fifth in command to fully squad leader. Right. and over the course of the movie, apparently, I don't know this. I only read it in my in my dossier. Uh, the joke, uh, <laughs> Private Joker, Private Joker is a sergeant by like the end of the yep. movie. Like yeah, he's going he's up in ranks. Yeah, he's and it's it's sort of that like failing upwards of the military. But then you see it nakedly displayed where it's like it's not failing upwards. It's there right. are vacancies. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. The people, people are dying. People be yeah. dying. Yeah. Or leaving heavy. or getting wounded and all that. Yeah. Cowboy's kind of like fully unremarkable too, you know? Yes. Right. He's not good There's or nothing bad. about him except he's, that he's Joker's right. friend. Right. And he's only Joker's friend because he stood next to him on day one. Right. Because they got stuck in the same shit together. Yeah. And fucking DI and one of their guys in their platoon fucking died on the last day. Yeah, and he was jerking off just so much to get out of it, and he still, yeah. Um, Adam Baldwin. I'm like, if that could have gotten you discharged from the military, I wouldn't have had to worry that much in this era. You know, wait a second. You know, I would have been like, one, I'm gone. You know what I'm saying, guys? Right. Yeah. Let me just bring National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation with me. (laughs) I I, I got flat arches and hairy palms. Discharge me immediately. Sears catalog. Does everyone know what I'm saying? All right. They they're shooting at what's called the Becton Gas Works, which was the largest gas plant in the world and was basically scheduled for demolition. And so British Gas, the company that owned it, was just like, do what you want. You want to blow shit up? Fine. Like, who cares? Yeah. And all the actors in retrospect are like, we were probably breathing in the most like insane fumes. Like, this was like an abandoned gas factory. Fuck the knows. Fact that there's about. so much concrete on fire. <laughs> yeah. Makes no yeah. sense. Like, they're just like, it's like uh, this concrete is just burning the entire time. Like twelve different buildings. It looks so good, but you're right. It feels like that would be like lethal for people. And, and oh. you know that this the sh- uh, eight ball. The actor describes his like they took like six weeks to shoot that portion where they're like creeping up. And eight ball describes it, he's like, I literally laid on the ground for six weeks. Yeah. Like I, I was Jesus. like, I didn't even yeah. think of that as an actor. It's like, we can't even put a mannequin out there. Cause he is kind of alive. You know? Right. So- <laughs> I mean, the last 20 minutes of the movie are just orange. Yes. 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 Um, oh. David, uh, we were joking about this with the the Doughboys over text. I don't think we've said this on mic, but the thing of like, we're almost surprised that Universal didn't let uh, Christopher Nolan drop an actual nuke for Oppenheimer. <laughs> right. Just let him blow one up. Come on. Right. Him, just one. Just one. Right. And at this point where you're just like, if the master wants it <laughs> right. and he claims he the first some military, space out. Hey, everyone right. get out of here. No he's going to drop a tactical up. nuke in Van Nuys right. and they're going right. to get it. You know, they're going to use 12 cameras on it. Right. Don't worry, <laughs> folks. They are shooting it on IMAX. We're going to get really good footage. <laughs> All right. Adam Baldwin, famously chill guy. actually don't know what he's up to lately, but I feel like he was the first celebrity when you were like, oh, I'll follow him on Twitter. Oh, this is fun. An actor I like has a Twitter account. And then like 10 minutes in, you were like, oh, Jesus Christ, I have to unfollow this guy. One, one of my have that experience? No? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of my <laughs> yeah. favorite types of uh, IMDb trivia fact is, of course, uh, 
IMDb user comes to conclusion on their own, presents it to everyone to show how smart and perceptive they are. <laughs> right. Sure. Uh, where's the one here? It's essentially, I want to try to get the wording right here, uh, but it's essentially like um, Matthew, uh, Matthew Modine plays a liberal character in the movie, which is funny because he is also liberal in life. Whereas Adam Baldwin is more conservative mm. and plays a conservative character. That's a pretty reductive way of looking at Full Metal Jacket, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I would call Animal that's Mother such, conservative. There's <laughs> such a, that's such a modern look at it where it's like, well, there's a classic delineation between yeah. people in America. <laughs> right. Liberals and conservatives. It's like, whoa! That's only recently a, a battleground. <laughs> I found it. I have to read this verbatim just because the, the sure. wording of this is incredible. The casting of Joker and Animal Mother can be seen as a case of art imitating life, colon. Mm. Matthew Modine is an outspoken liberal Democrat, not too dissimilar to Joker, who is clearly mm. more of a dove and may not have any religious preference. He tells Sergeant Hartman he does not believe in the Virgin Mary. Meanwhile, Animal Mother's hawkish instinct can be somewhat of a parallel to Adam Baldwin's conservatism. Yeah, he's really hawkish. Yeah, that's yes. how I would describe the guy with 80 bandoliers of fucking giant bullets around him. Very hawkish. Hawk and dove. Yes. Uh, I would say Adam Baldwin is excellent in this movie. He's generally a great actor. Uh, I really like Adam Baldwin as an actor. He's good at playing this type of a guy. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he's sort of the anti uh, D'Onofrio, what you're talking about, Gabrus, where it's like you watch him in this, and you're like, how did this guy not get roles this good for the rest of his career? And then it's like, right. oh, he's a nightmare to work with. He's a, he's a bit of a pain. <laughs> but uh, he does have one good story, which is that he would play chess with Kubrick all the time, which I feel like mm -hmm. there's a story from every movie or some guy playing with chess with him all the time. And he said, uh, you know, we'd lay out the board and he would kind of waddle over and wipe you out in 15 moves. And one time, <laughs> I do like him saying that he would waddle, waddle. over you. And <laughs> I, 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 you can picture it for some reason. Yeah, the you classic can. Kubrick waddle and wipe out. Uh, one time I actually got him to blunder and I won the game. Big deal. One out of 50. But I said, mm -hmm. hey, I got you. I got you. You have to resign. And he said to me, the only reason you won, Adam, is because I have so little respect for your game that I made a blunder. Now get back to work. And then he had a little wry grin and he walked away. Walked away. <laughs> oh, uh, do, oh, I do man. like that, though, that he is just yeah, uh, an absolutely sore loser. Yeah. <laughs> well, a scene I wanted to spotlight that really disturb me this time around mm. this viewing is when we're meeting in the third part the platoon mm -hmm. there's uh i don't remember the character's name but he reveals the dead soldier the guy whose birthday party oh it yes is. yes dude. yes yeah who you think is just like a sleeping guy yeah. like a, a dude a taking over indiana head. jones yeah. style nap yeah. and obviously it's disturbing as a dead person but i like really listened to like what he's saying in that monologue yeah and it it's like um it's kind of this thing where we're like talking about how the comedy really works in this movie because of the context of what's happening it's war mm -hmm. this is like a comedy bit right or like it's like he's, he's trying funny. to be it's funny the opposite it's and like, it's yeah. so fucking terrifying but that's pretty much anytime anyone in this movie tries to be funny, it's upsetting. Yeah. And anytime people are serious, it's kind of funny. Like, it's like he's doing this bit and you're like, this person is never going to be the same. Right. Like, this person has lost their mind. Yeah, that's the th I mean, that's, I, it's so much what you this movie is. You got eight ball defending animal mother. You got, like, uh, 
fucking what's his name touchdown who we meet briefly like Ed O'Ross yeah, Ed O'Ross love, yeah. love Ed O'Ross Lo- big look coming from Action Boys where Ed O'Ross the hidden heads. wait he's, you're, he's, you're, you're telling me that like, you like Ed O'Ross <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, the hidden I assume you guys have done the hidden on Action Boys we have it's not one of my yet, favorite no. 80s movies what oh no. god can I come on from the hidden please of course <laughs> okay great love that movie uh, he put Ed O'Ross plays a different nationality in like twelve movies. Yes. In a row. Yeah, he's like he's like he a Russian every bad guy. He's like European. a Latino bad guy. Yes. He's like yes. <laughs> I mean, he owns the flower shop on Six Feet Under. Oh, right? he's so yes. good in that. Yeah, so that's like good. a later in life role for him, where he yeah. he is really good. And I feel like right because he dates Francis Conroy for a while, and his yes. his like dating style is like you you should date me. Hey, why don't we go out? You know, like he's just doing that the whole time. It's great. Man, you want to hear a weird Ed O'Neill credit? Uh, Ed O'Ross Ross credit. Uh, weird, you want to hear a weird Ed O'Neill credit? He sure, was on Married Family? with Children. No one talks about that. <laughs> no. Uh, we, weird Ed O'Ross uh, credit. He was the voice of Agent K on the Men in Black cartoon show. Huh. He That's did fun. TLJ. He was doing TLJ. I guess I could yeah. see him being a diet TLJ. He's <laughs> yeah. also... He's itchy in Dick Tracy, and he's yes. kind of unrecognizable in that, but he's really good. Wait a second. I'm sorry. You're telling me someone is unrecognizable in <laughs> Dick Tracy? But, like, it, in Red Heat, he plays a Russian. In Lethal yep. Weapon, he plays yes. a Latino. And then yep. in Universal Soldier, he plays an American, like, colonel. <laughs> like, yeah, he can he could do, like, a cigar-chomping <laughs> thing, too. And then yeah, in this, yeah. he's an, a Notre Dame football player. Like, mm-hmm. a, there's not much more American. And then that kicks off the... We meet someone, they die. We meet someone, they die. We meet someone, or Joker meets someone, they die, however you want to look at it. And it's so realistic. They're like, hey, where's Cowboy? We're coming to meet. Oh, Cowboy's up there. And then it's just like everyone that they meet along the way dies. And it's just like, if you mapped it out outline-wise, you'd be like, this is so cartoonish. It's like the leader dies, then the next leader dies, then the next leader dies. And it's like... It seems cartoonish on the page, but watching it in this movie, it feels so realistic how a guy like Cowboy, who is just a random banana from fucking uh, a platoon, (laughs) is now leading a squad in like an anti-sniper mission and shit. It's fucking... I I never picked up on all of that stuff, like the war is hell elements that aren't said out loud. Like, like I'm more like, Boku Bucks, you know, (laughs) like when I first watched this. Like, I'm embarrassed by how many times I watch this and Clockwork Orange as sort of like, sick, hit him with the giant concrete dick, you know? Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. (laughs) whatever. Hosley, right. Haas and I can can go in on this. I think as I like recovering dirtbags. Yeah, <laughs> like I feel like we like I, we can like speak to that like ex dirtbag life. But on on this like on this I'm get like and now I'm like crazy you know an anti war person anti military yeah. and like watching it I'm like holy shit oh man this movie is so rich and real and has such a strong take on war that I had. Previously, just been like drip down to crack your ass, end up a stain on the mattress is the coolest thing <laughs> anyone could ever say. Quotes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do love good. Remember when on Facebook we would all have our favorite quotes? Yeah, what, uh, what, a, what AOL, an era. Uh, uh, instant messenger away mess. Oh. Uh, and look again. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. Oh, I like yeah. to be the forty-year-old in the room, but mm. I used to make mi- mix CDs, burn CDs with movie quotes in between songs. Oh, I would oh, do okay. the same. <laughs> Adorable. I think about the time I spent <laughs> assembling mix CDs, sending them out in the mail, handwriting liner notes. 
you know, and being like, how many skits can I fit on before it's too many? Like, what's the balance between comedy and spoken word and actual music? By the way, Gabrus, I'm I'm about to be 37. You're not that much older than me. No, I know. I know. I'm a grand old man over here. And my bar mitzvah is next week, so I'm about to be a man. You're about to be a man. (laughs) Meeting Griffin when he's like an 11 year old in your improv class just kind of establishes a dynamic that never goes away. Sure. Even once you've now seen him be like a 35 year old with like health issues, you're like, oh, yeah. you're an old man, right? Like, yeah, the it happens of us. fast. You meet him when he's a 16 year old child actor, wide eyed. You're like, I, <laughs> this kid is a fucking baby for life. <laughs> I'm old. I'm 20 years older than when I met you, and that I don't put that on you. Right. At all. <laughs> I've stayed the same. Yeah. Uh, it is, you know, the like the strike that people have against this movie of it just being kind of like formless or like incidental anecdotal kind of you know like oh they just took the book and it's these three sections and shit just kind of happens all the stuff we're talking about where it's like when you get to that moment of the guy taking the head off the dead guy and just being like oh he's just here and they're all making jokes about it and everything right. that makes sense to you if you've watched 45 minutes of like boot camp of dehumanization yeah right you know right. in the same way that it's like um, the the speed at which people die. I mean, all this stuff. It's like I I do think the odd structure of this movie benefits it in a lot of ways of really placing you into each of the three yes. spaces. It wants you to consider psychologically as aspects of war and how they interact with each other to get to the point where these guys are just sort of like weird, dead, broken inside. Yeah, yeah. Right. Along those lines, like the middle chunk is the is the 12 intellectuals drinking coffee talking right. about what's wrong with the Vietnam War or whatever. Like, that middle mm-hmm. chunk gives you that other perspective of, like, the intelligence, whatever you want to call those people, like, hipsters. Like, yeah. like we, we get to see that perspective for a brief moment and then see Joker's perspective shattered from, like, the Ted offensive yeah. through him chasing down his, uh, his old buddy. Like, you see him destroy himself at Paris Island but survive and him is now he's still got this personality but by the end of the movie he will have the thousand yard stare like he's given the thousand yard stare he's given the the choice of something he has to do that will fuck him up for life or he's already fucked up for life he's got to do one more like it's it's thinking about it from like that perspective, like the, like you're saying, the three different movies, mm. each one makes them make the other ones hit harder. Right, that's the thing. Yeah. And like the middle section is him feeling like he, like pretty cocky that he has figured out the exact amount of healthy distance he can have from this incredibly unhealthy thing to not have it destroy him. Right, it, it psychologically, literally kill him, all of that. Mm. Th- there's something too that he they're working for Stars and Stripes that never mm-hmm. really hit me in past viewings of that they're they're journalists but they're part of the military propagandists yeah, yeah. right right I- I'm going to stick up for Stars and Stripes. It's not propaganda at all. I know people who work for Stars and Stripes, and it is much more complicated than that, to call it, than calling it propaganda. But, but back in the day, they certainly, you know, they certainly, especially in Vietnam, had their limitations. But, well, but yeah, I think, he's I think they shaded his, a yes. little bit here. Right. Of, like, they shaded mm-hmm. a little bit from him, of like uh, from uh, the hunk 
uh, explaining to us, Lockhart is his name in the movie, but like, uh, he kind of is like, we don't want, people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear the real shit right now. Right. Uh, yeah, whenever he's yeah, like yes. around other sort of like grunts or superiors or whatever, they're like, well, you're going to do the right kind of piece, right? Even yeah. if it's not he's being told those are the marching orders from his editor as much, there is that assumption of like, you're not one of these fucking lefty outside journalists right. coming in and writing some judgment on us. I, I love also in the third act, every time he meets someone, they change, they get excited. Yes. Like right. the energy of these people who are in the absolute hell are like, oh, wait, I could be famous. Oh, wait, hold on. Right. What's my character's story? Like, who am I? What's my bit? Yeah. yeah. What's who? How do I convey my like that? That run when they're doing the documentary. Uh, Kubrick shooting someone shooting a fucking war movie is is a war doc is yeah. a wild fucking like. Uh, you know, zoom out moment, but everyone changing like their POV or their attitude once they're rolling on themselves. Like Rafterman is, I, I brought it up earlier, but we hear it from a lot of these guys. Like they're posturing, they're creating of their character or they're creating of their belief in war. Mm -hmm. It's like they're actors in a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. You've ever... War is hell. Mo making movies is harder. Yeah. That's the main <laughs> takeaway from this movie. <laughs> Um, the only Oscar nomination this gets is screenplay. Did he get a sound nomination, maybe, or is it just screenplay? Yeah, it's, it's just, just kind of wild. Even it's, if this didn't wild. hit in the major categories, you're like, you don't give this cinematography, you don't give this sound. Yeah, it is. Let's well, hell, let's look at cinematography. Uh, uh, because while, while we're on the know. subject of cinematography, I talked about that beautiful shot of everyone running into the smoke. Another mm -hmm. great one is from Paris Island when they're all covered in mud and running at camera. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, in the director's commentary, I also, or the commentary, I remember hearing D'Onofrio saying, uh, when they watched that clip back, everyone was really impressed. Like, uh, Kubrick wanted to seem like a stampede of buffaloes. And it, mm -hmm. like when you watch, and it really, they're filling the frame coming right at them with covered in mud. And you see like everyone is now like the becoming the killer vert, the marine version of themselves. It's mm -hmm. a fucking great, great storytelling in one frame. It's like if we're gassing up cinematographer. The nominees were Last Emperor, which is like the big winner of 1987 sure. on every like technical award, right? Yeah. And then Empire of mm -hmm. the Sun and Hope and Glory, which are similarly big epic movies. Sure. And then Meitawan, which is Haskell Wexler in his like old yeah. age, you know, absolutely fucking crushing it. And uh and then Broadcast News, which is sort of a surprise nominee. It's Michael Ballhouse, but that movie does have great cinematography. But I guess Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're not bad nominees, is what I'm saying. And then sound, you know, it's losing out to like Empire of the Sun, Lethal Weapon, Robocop, Witches of Eastwick, and Last Emperor. I mean, I'm surprised too. Yeah. Maybe there was, Griff, some internal resistance to Kubrick, the King of England, right? Like this sort of like, hey, man, you don't want to work in Hollywood? Because like these are trade, you know, voters essentially. Right. Maybe that right. was it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I genuinely don't know. But obviously. That makes sense. The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut are all basically ignored by the Oscars after, you know, a run of his movies getting lots of Oscar attention. I know. Like, the one that's yeah. wild is is that Clockwork Orange got, got Best picture. picture. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. You feel like that's the one that would have totally turned them off. 
Right, but that's I guess such an exciting time for the Oscars, and they they make mostly good choices in this, you know. But yeah. it does feel like starting with The Shining for whatever reason, the the Oscar game is it may, and I'm sure Kubrick did not really play it either, right? Like I'm sure he oh. did not. You do think anything. this guy didn't do the campaign? You think, you <laughs> right. think Kubrick wasn't well, that's probably doing part of it too. Parties? Yeah, dude, I I remember reading an interview with Pacino or hearing it somewhere where he was like talking about the Oscars, like I don't want to go to that bullshit, and it's like it felt like uh, imagine a, 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 an actor with that attitude now, how much yeah. we, like it, like. We got like our legendary actors are selling fucking like content like online, I know. you know. Like, and this was comes right. from, like things have evolved so much. You have to be so much more than just like you used to be able to be like a freak actor, just be like, oh yeah, that guy's just like a freak Not and he's so that, good and stuff. But the the amount of press about Florence Pugh not doing press, it's insane. The amount you know? we're talking about this movie. Uh, yeah. Don't worry, darling. I right. think you're referencing the amount we're talking about this movie. Like, I I wish we didn't know this much. But that about the cornerstone yeah. of it is like <laughs> she's only done six interviews for the movie. Clearly, there's a big problem here. And I'm like, yeah, the problem is that marketing is insane on all of these fucking things. Yeah. The problem is that she's expected to do 60. Right. And it's like, why? It is it's a right. fucking it's I a can't speak to movie. the inner workings of all this dynamic, but it's like the idea that it's like. She's doing nothing for this film. She hasn't been putting out the hashtags. <laughs> that that makes me want to go into the latrine with my fucking with Charlene and, <laughs> and fucking paint the fucking tile with my brain. <laughs> Full metal jacket. Um what one thing I want to shout out is of course the score is credited to Abigail Mead, but that is Kubrick's daughter. Yes. Right. Vivian Kubrick. Uh, who did not want to be judged by her last name, so she had the pseudonym. And it's like this weird sort of synthesizer score. Uh, it's very cool. It was disqualified from Oscar consideration um, because I think because it was too short, like literally. There's not a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, it's like 22 minutes long, yeah. Right. yeah. The soundtrack uh, is so iconic in this movie that you think about that when you think about the entire movie and, right. the, and the music. But on uh, watching it, you're like, and that... I mean, soundscapey synthy music is like my dream in movies. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I love, you know, yeah, all the Michael Mann, well, Carpenter, all like, oh, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's all my wheelhouse. And then I really picked up on it this time. And then the juxtaposition of that to like these boots are made for walking is such a right. fucking fun, rich uh, dynamic as well. Surfing bird, yeah, yes. the way that's you. Song yes. Best novelty song is. hands down ever made. Yeah. Fucking the Trashman. I got to see them actually at a <laughs> WFMU record fair. And it was, <laughs> sure, they were sure. all in their 60s, but and like did they do Surfenberg? <laughs> of course they no, did. No, they, they didn't. fucking crushed. It was so incredible. Like 60-year-old <laughs> men with like black dyed hair, still wearing skin tight black jeans, black shirt, and they fucking ripped, I mean, bless them. The it Trash Men, also a great name for a band. We should change the the bit from Screaming Freebird at concerts to Screaming Surfer Bird at concerts. That's Surfing Bird! So <laughs> I first fell in love with that song uh, in uh, uh, Frankie and Annette's Back to the Beach, uh, the humonga oh, yeah, from Down yeah, Under. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman dances to Bird, yes, Bird, yes. Bird. Bird is the word. 
Um, this is Vivian Kubrick did a score for Eyes Wide Shut that wasn't used, right? This mm. is her only used score. She that was sort of right. yeah, the, the protege um, of his daughter, Jocelyn who was, Pook, right? Who does the uh, Eyes Wide Shut score? Which but I Vivian like. was the one who was working on all the sets, did the Shining yes. documentary, obviously. Um, yeah. And she, I believe she did one for Full Metal Jacket as well. That's called like okay. Shooting Full Metal Jacket. I've never yeah. seen it. But I just thought Kubrick yeah. said he just wanted no recognizable instruments. He wanted like a score that sounded different and was mm. harder to place. And it's coming off of like Wendy Carlos delivering two of the best electronic scores ever. Yeah. It's so interesting how with Kubrick, it's like he has so much iconic. His movies are iconic musically, obviously, yeah. right? Like this, the soundtracks, the 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 music that he picks, and then they always have these idiosyncratic actual scores, or often yes. have, right? Like 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 the Wendy Carlos stuff, like this. I love it. He's a yeah. cool guy. I actually he's think cool. he's a good director, guys. I I think uh, the thing he's good at doing is uh, making films, making making films, film making. Uh, this film. Mm-hmm. Made thirty-eight million dollars against a seventeen million dollar budget. Okay, uh, in its first fifty days of release, it ultimately grossed forty-six domestic and one twenty worldwide. It was a hit that That's got the mixed thing. reviews. Played really well overseas, always. Yeah, if you look at them. Yeah, but, but like I also feel like much like The Shining, it's like it actually did well despite yeah. the big investment of time and money. Yeah, and the reviews were very like eh. You know, yes. like uh, on release. That's yes. what, like, both these, and then of course they endure. These are enduring films. But it's funny. I know there's inflation uh, because I'm on Twitter, but uh, there is 17 million for a movie that went like 150 days I know. over, I know. and it's like legend. And it's like that's what like uh, Ryan Reynolds' hair guy got on like yeah. Red Red Scare Two or Red Alert, whatever the fuck that uh, right. the Red Zone, whatever the fuck that movie's called. But it's like yeah, it was called Red million, Scare. It was about 17 million seems like like people are like if you could make. Full Metal Jacket for $17 million. Right. What the fuck is Doctor Strange 2, guys? <laughs> like, come on. Because no, even if you adjust for inflation, you're like, this costs 50 or $60 million. Right. I'm like, over two years? <laughs> yeah. It no, sounds maybe. like a bargain to me. <laughs> right. uh, should we play the box office game? Yes. Is there a... Yeah, okay, all right. Um... All right, let's do, do we want to do the first weekend or the first wide weekend? Hmm, they're very different. One is full of iconic movies and one is full of trash. Well, not trash. That's too strong. Um I want to you know what? I'm going to do the wide weekend Griffin because okay. you'll see. All right. Okay. So, it's first weekend wide. It, it it's limited for the first couple of weekends then it goes wide. So, it's number 2 at the box office. Full Metal Jacket. This is July 10th, 1987. Okay. Okay. Number 1 is a comedy sequel. Number one is a comedy sequel in not a good one. Eighty-seven is it Beverly Hills Cop two? No, I mean okay. I actually like that movie. That is number seven at the box office. That's okay, a good uh, this a good is one. not a good comedy sequel. Is it a two? It's a two, and not a good uh, comedy franchise. Oh, it's not a good comedy franchise. Is it very, Police Academy very 2? 80s. No, but, you know. Close. I was going to say Arthur 2 on the rocks. <laughs> I mean, good guesses. No. It, it's, but it's a similar franchise where it's like not we left the last that franchise one. in this the 80s. This is a 2. I believe it's the last may, It's the last that's not made for TV. There are two more that are made for TV. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Two more that are... Oh, oh, oh. Is it Revenge of the Nerds 2? 
And what's the subtitle on that, baby? Fuck. Is it uh, uh, Nerds in Paradise? That's right. That's yeah. right. Wow. The nerds were in paradise. Right, because I think three is Nerds in Love. That no, that's, for four. TV. that's, that's four. That's four. Three okay. is the next generation. Oh, boy. Uh, do you yes. know? Do you know that like 10, 15 years ago, they started filming Revenge of the Nerds remake and like a week into filming, we're just like, what are we doing here? And they we just shut notice. it down and never <laughs> finished it. I did not know that. That whoever said, what are we doing here? Should get the palm door. Yes. Like, like, just get, like whoever said that deserves the highest uh, award you can have in cinema, because thank you. You did more for movie making than Kubrick did by just not making that movie. Yeah, they, they right. This was it. They shot, I think, for like a week on some yeah. campus. And then the campus, the college read the script and was like, leave immediately. We do not approve. <laughs> you guys then... don't even have the third act rape by the hero. And we don't God. even want to watch this movie. <laughs> That's one reason this franchise should be left for dead. Uh, and then Fox watched the dailies and was like, you know what, guys? Forget it. We don't, we don't need to restart it. this. I'm trying to remember who it is, but it was like some current film producer executive. McGee. Who worked there at the time? No, I think Howard Stern was involved in it, and Adam Brody maybe as well. It had Adam Brody was in it. it. Yeah, he yeah. was in it. Yeah. Um, but but one of the executives when they were at that point where like they had lost their location and they were deciding whether or not to put it back up, they watched the footage and they were like, "Wait, nerds aren't like this anymore." Like that was apparently right. the big point they made the meme yeah. was they were like, "The rest of our Fox film slate is superhero films. They have one. They don't act." like this they don't look like this <laughs> do not there's nothing revenge. for them to overcome anymore <laughs> yes. and that yeah, was they even run said, the world They're, that yeah. was said 15 years ago like they weren't <laughs> even aware of how much worse it was going to become um number one is revenge of the nerds two nonetheless number two right. is full metal jacket <laughs> number I'm three sure, for sure kubrick loved that <laughs> Uh, who are these nerds? Yeah. Um, number anyway, three, Kubrick goes nerds. <laughs> like um, <ogre>. yes, <laughs> is number three is a a very sort of well known uh, film take on a hit TV show uh, hmm. that is bad. Hmm. Yes. So it's okay. So it's not the Untouchables. No. No, it's a comedy it, version of, okay. you know, along those Car 54, lines. where are you? No, but very close now. I'm close. I'm Dragnet. Close. There you go. There we go. It's Dragnet with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. Just the facts. These days, I feel like mostly famous for its bizarre city of crime yes. uh, rap video yeah. that you can Google anytime you want. But also, uh, what, a, really what a bizarre wanna... high concept premise for that movie of like, the bit is we're taking Dragnet, a deadly serious mm -hmm. show, making it as a comedy where the joke is one guy acts like he's in Dragnet and everyone else right. does not. Because it's Aykroyd is, he's Joe Friday Jr. Right. or whatever, right? Like he's the right. new Joe Friday and he just acts like Joe Friday, but it's the 80s now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Dragnet, <laughs> never seen it. Number four is a high concept sci-fi comedy that we will cover on this podcast one day. Huh. We will cover it on this podcast one day. In 1987, is a high-concept sci-fi dramedy. It's not a McTiernan. I would call it a comedy. It's not a, it's not a McTiernan, no. Just thinking of people in the Someday file. It's not a Joe Dante. It is a Joe Dante. It is a Joe Dante. Fuck. Okay. 89 is the Burbs. 89 is the Burbs. Is it, That's right. Is it the Explorers? That's 85. It's the movie in between those two. Inner Space? Inner Space. There we go. Martin Short, 
Yeah. Uh, Dennis Quaid, obviously. Meg Ryan. I love that that movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's that run post Gremlins where Dante has these movies that like score through the roof in test screenings. And everyone's like, it's another hit for you, Joe. And all of them underperform. And they're mostly all good. Right. He's working with like good actors, good premises. Is Explorers Uh, good? Explorers is the one where it's like one of those truly unfinished movies where they like didn't let him shoot the last act of it. And he's kind of disowned it because he's like, I just fundamentally did not get to finish shooting the script. I remember liking it as a kid because of real like wish fulfillment shit. But I, I never it. There's nothing that stands out to me about loving it. You know what I mean? Like it is good. It just is very much a movie marred by being like. There's clearly a version of this that wasn't made that was just unfinished right there Look, that we'll never get to see. And yeah. it's Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix as yeah. kids, dude. Yeah. Look, <laughs> if, if Dante never makes another movie, Griffin, I know he you want him to and he, he may yeah. well make another movie, but mm-hmm. do we just do him and just do the whole and bearing the X as one episode? Like we just try to limit the, the, the badness because pretty much everything else is good. I don't really have a problem with the whole. You don't have a pro- but like, but does it need its own episode, or can we just kind of tack it on to the bad I, movie? I just truly don't want to end on him. I know you don't. This is this is why we've never done Dante. That's your thing. You don't. I'd like end him to make another. Film. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. Uh, I hope he does. I hope he. Does. I hope so too. Um, that's number four. Number mm-hmm. five, Griffin, and this is why I wanted to do this weekend is a film you've mentioned on this episode. Robocop. Nope. But that is this summer, right? Yeah, Robocop is maybe later this summer because it's not here maybe that it's comes out in july. july july okay it comes out okay. next week oh baby number yeah. one at the box office that's right um, it is it's a film i mentioned in this episode is it a war film no we mentioned it uh in the context of one of the actors it's a teen comedy it's the debut of another director who we could i suppose do on blank check i think he was on the march madness once it what's not an anthony michael hall movie no Teen actor, director we could cover. He's not a teen actor. It's a teen comedy, you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Is it Adventures in Babysitting? It's Adventures in Babysitting. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, it can't be that one that we really talked about an extended It is. That's crazy, right? D'Onofrio is on, on, you know, different screens in your multiplex in completely different bodies. Yeah. Wait, who who directed? Who directed? Chris uh, Columbus. Columbus. It's Chris Columbus's first film. Yeah. Fuck. It's his directorial, because he wrote gremlins obviously but right. it's his directorial debut and he wrote the goonies right yeah yeah he, yeah damn he really kind of damn geez chris columbus one of the nicest people i've ever met chris columbus everyone really says that a total sweetheart yeah. um number six is the witches of eastwick which obviously we've covered on this uh-huh. podcast number seven beverly hills cop two number eight the untouchables which you mm. mentioned of course number nine is space balls uh oh, which just came out a couple of weeks ago and then number 10 is roxanne it's you know some good it's movies. Quite a summer, yeah. I, and look, just to go back to a previous thesis I made, the other nine movies on that list all are '80s movies. <laughs> and then yeah. right yes. in the middle, yes. like yes. number two is yes. Full Metal Jacket, which does not feel like no. an '80s. Like every other movie is just like, oh, we're having '80s movie night at the local right. cinema. You could play any, but if you threw Full Metal Jacket up there, people would be like, really? <laughs> It's, we love it's the 80s. so odd. Yeah. We heart 80s. Michael Ian Black would love to chat about Full Metal Jacket. 
You know, my my college internship was on I Love the 90s Part D. Oh, <laughs> folly, I do. Do you, I mean, did you ever do any of the Best Week Ever reboots? No, I was a PA on the OG Best Week Ever. Right. Uh, and then the you, you were obviously in the, in the guy code circuit, but it truly feels like you missed the I Love the and the Best the by like, by that much. You were there on set. If I would, yeah, if I would, if I would have started my career like three years, like I, it's funny how much talking head comedy is in like the first eight years of my career, including like I know. my three years of my survivor job was like working at VH1 on talking head shows. And then my big quote unquote break, my first acting gigs were being a talking head on yeah. a different MTV mm. network. It's it humiliating. Was wild. It was just, that was <laughs> the industry. It was so indicative of the time. It's like right. living in New York and you yes. want to work in comedy. It's like if you can't get the daily show or S. SNL, like that's what you have left. Just John, one. Yeah. And I was an extra on 30 Rock. I literally hit well, like yes, all of the 90s, yes. jo- all of the New York jobs you can have at the time. Did you do that show? It was a pilot that didn't go, but that I think it was for VH1 that was like 20s versus 30s. No. Do you remember this? No. There's 20s? a chance you maybe did this and don't remember it because it was just <laughs> like everyone got fucking called in for it. Um, but it was like a panel show. It, it very much, maybe, you know what? If you weren't on it, it was probably because Guy Code was already running and there was a non-compete thing. <laughs> but it was like, this is what your 20s are like versus this is what your 30s are like. And they'd pick some subject and you'd fucking talk about it. And they had like comedians in their 20s and comedians in their 30s. Years later, when she fucking did the podcast, put together that fucking Nia DaCosta now director of the Marvels was the person who like fucking was prompting me off camera for that. That is so fucking funny. <laughs> Cause we started emailing about doing the podcast and I was like, and I think we met at like trivia once and she was like, you wouldn't remember this, but I did that stupid fucking thing. And I was That's the person saying so like, so what's fucking... it like buying groceries in your twenties? <laughs> there were just that, the only thing that people wanted to make for like 10 years there in mm. comedy. They're kind of dead now, right? Like they don't exist anymore. I feel like no, because like the whole yeah, TikTok, IG, front face right, camera, right. Just, it's right. all just social media. That. Just yeah. killed right. that. Yeah, yeah it yeah. can't and Make... it can't happen fast enough. Like no, yeah. best week ever was insane because it was a weekly turnaround. Like that right. was what was crazy about it at the time. Right. Now, if you had to wait four days to like yeah. watch comedy about something that happened in the news, you'd be furious with your wait because like, we get it, it felt, in six seconds. It felt astonishing they could get an entire segment out on Friday night about something that happened on Wednesday, right? It was crazy. And we were like, we thought we were like fucking the newsroom. You know what right. I mean? Like we were like, we got to get the Bachelorette package in for this week's episode. It's like, we got to transcribe the Chuck Nice interview. You know, like, <laughs> there's like, there's just always some dumb fucking shit. And of course, every job you're in is like the highest stakes of course. Gig you can possibly have. I'm 22 being like, need to find turkey baster footage. <laughs> for like- but, but now you're just like. Twitter has rung dry Adam Levine's uh, uh, fucking uh, DMs right. within 12 hours. Right. There's no way you could get it on air fast enough. You would have to like by the time like if you had a weekly comedy show like that rounds this shit up, you would have to like have the sixth take on Levine. Yes. Like you you know what I mean? Like you'd have to have like some sort of galaxy brain take that is like somehow no one has gotten definitive. And that's yeah. just embarrassing. Yeah. You literally cannot upload the files fast enough. <laughs> uh, John, always a pleasure. Please. Seriously. 
Uh, we were. I'm, I was trying to do the the take account of the episodes you've been on. Heat, well, Road yeah. Warrior, Full Metal Jacket, like three and beyond canonical movies. No, I oh, know, I know. Oh, I see, I see. Right, right. I You're saying that one's furious. a bit of an outlier. Yeah. yeah, but like you got like Heat, Road Warrior, Full Metal Jacket, arguably all classics within their genres at the like top top tier. Of course, they, no. I I feel fucking blessed. Also, you bring me in for action shit, which I could. I've sure. watched thousands. Like these, mo- all the movies you've described are movies I watched when I was fourteen and right. forty, and had two completely different takes and opinions on them. And it feels so rich to get to talk about it at that level, rather than my nor my normal like comedy riffing on jokes about uh, Neil's love of Neil Macaulay's love of metal books. Like getting hey. to fucking analyze it from. Uh, with uh, with the connoisseurs of do, context lady. themselves, tensile strengths. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of though, people should subscribe to Action Boys. Yeah, actionboys.biz. Um, we have some free episodes if you're just uh, want to listen, get, get a little sniff, get you hooked. Uh, you can find free episodes wherever you get podcasts. But we're on Patreon at actionboys.biz, putting out weekly uh, episodes for over five years uh, in the blank check mold of. Un- nothing has been under two hours ever. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we are famously we have a three hour and forty minute episode about the movie The Program. Like Perfect. that's like how it, like that's humiliating. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and one hundred one places to party before you die. Yes, True TV. Use your parents' login. Watch it at the dentist <laughs> office or wherever the fuck you can get True TV. Get hit by a car. Wake up in a hospital and finally get to watch it. Uh, Be like, or True TV, please. <laughs> so you're oh, like in it's... traction. <laughs> and they put it on. It's like, oh man, the Jokers. <laughs> oh, practical Jokers for six what hours. What were you expecting? You put on True TV. It's either fucking playoff hockey or the Jokers. But in between, we got 101 places to party before you die. Buy it on Amazon or whatever. I don't know. We're trying to get a second season. We'll see. Uh, Corporate mergers are thrilling for shareholders and Mm. brutal for creators. But but also let's say also bad for consumers. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's truly only good for the investment class. So yeah, absolutely. dig in if you have discovery fucking shares. <laughs> yeah. Um. Thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for having me. This was a fucking blast. I was so- oh. Hair by Leonard. This is the one thing I meant to talk about. What an insane title card at the end of the movie. It just says Hair by Leonard. Because he does like <laughs> the classic Kubrick end of credit shit where it's like everyone and he and there's just hair by Leonard. I'll send you guys the pic. I could not fucking get over it. Is <laughs> he the guy that... who's shaved all the heads? <laughs> I'll say Lenny's this, just his... the name of the guy with the buzzer. His name is Leonard Lewis. He was the world's first celebrity hairdresser. He famously had a salon in Swingin' London, and Stanley Kubrick always used him. And that's why it says Hair by Leonard on many a Kubrick movie. This is just such a great fucking credit to see something like that. Especially for this one, where this is like almost the least hair in any movie we've covered since THX 1138. (laughs) L- Leonard phoned it in for this one. He just, he just yeah. threw someone a razor. It was like, come on, you know what to do. Here's some clippers. Uh, Ermy in the commentary says they use animal shears because they needed it to get like the bigger, cinematically get bigger chunks of hair in like one. Right. So he's got these guys fucking uh, coming back to Getting. shoot like four weeks after and then hitting them with animal shears on the head. That shit hurts, dog. You're wild. <laughs> Uh, thank you again, Gabrus, and thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, 
and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. Thank you to AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing, Lee Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song, Joe Bowen and Pat Rounds for our artwork, uh, JJ Birch for our research. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon Blank Check special features, where we're currently doing the Roger Moore Bond movies. Have you guys watched those for Action Boys? I think the one we've done, your uh, the Chris Walken one. I'm not a big Bond head. Okay, uh, that's not more though. Uh, that's right? a Dalton. That's Dalton, the Chris Walken one that... is a, is a more. No, no, no. Chris Walken. Oh, it is. is okay. It's more. It's more being super, mm-hmm. more super old. That's what it is. Is that yeah, that's the yeah, last one? Old. Right. We haven't gotten yeah, to that old. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next on the feed is Octopussy, and then you know, View to a Kill Great. shortly after that. What wild, wild fucking movies. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. Low key wild. Low yeah. key a little wild. <laughs> um uh, Hosley, I'll see you in the Trashman fan forums. Uh we're always <laughs> <now our generic. laughs> That's where we keep up. <laughs> uh yeah. and tune in next week for Eyes Wide Shut, our final Stanley Kubrick episode. That's right. And then we should say, uh, well, no, we'll, we'll announce whatever at the end we'll of the announce episode. Announce it next week. Announce it next yeah. week. People yeah. figured it out. Uh, anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh-huh. <laughs> and as always. Uh-huh. I don't know. I got myself. Into like now a- you're like, stop laughing. <laughs> you bag it. I can't. I have to use David's hands to choke myself. <laughs> <laughs>